0: I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, And energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS. As in Tim Ferriss show. Athleticgreens.com slash TFS. (laughs) Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. My guest today is Daniel H. Pink, at Daniel Pink on Twitter. He is the author of six provocative books, including his newest When subtitle, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. When is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Post, and Publishers Weekly bestseller. That's a lot of lists. Pink's other books include the long-running New York Times bestseller A Whole New Mind and the number one New York Times bestseller's Drive and to Sell is Human. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 37 languages at last count. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. You can also find his work, his various goings-on at danpink.com. And if Facebook is your thing, facebook.com forward slash Daniel H. Pink. Dan, welcome to the show. Tim, thanks for having me. It has been quite a while since we last. Several years. Several years. And uh, I know we were talking about all things Japanese, most likely, uh, at least in in one of our recent conversations based on one of your books. Uh, And maybe you could tell people actually just as context a little bit about that book that we were chatting about in manga format or Japanese comic format. And we'll use that as a jumping off point.
1: Yes, indeed. That was one of my best ideas that didn't go anywhere. Um, that, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, that was a book called The Adventures of Johnny Bunko. And, and it, as you say, Tim, it was written in the Japanese comic format known as manga. And as you know, as a Japanophile in Japan, manga, the comic format is is much more versatile and more widely used than it is here in the United States. So uh, so you have grownups reading comics and they can be things about financial advice, things about love life, things about history. And so I did a fellowship in Japan with my wife and our three kids where I studied the manga industry. And I came back and said, you know what? I think it's time for manga to broaden its reach here in the United States of America. So I wrote a book called The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, and it's a uh, graphic novel in a manga form uh, that reveals The Six Essential Lessons of Any Satisfying, Productive Career, through the story of a hapless young accountant named Johnny Bunko.
0: That was a fantastically concise description. And I wanted to also, you said in the beginning that it was the best idea that didn't go anywhere, or something along those lines. And I, I wanted to bring up the book because it seems for those people it struck a chord with, it struck a very deep chord. And I believe it was Kevin Kelly, arguably the most interesting man in the world, who was on this Uh, podcast, and he mentioned that that book was, at least at the time, his most gifted book. So I wanted to at least highlight the fact that if it's good enough for Kevin Kelly, it should be good enough for many, many other people.
1: Uh, that's, a, that's exactly right. No, Kevin has Kevin did say that. And I actually think it's a good book. We did reasonably well with it. It didn't blow off the doors. I, I think I was you know, this is a this is a common uh, uh, thing that happens in, in, in life and in investing in entrepreneurship and publishing and anything is that you could be right too early. I yes. think that's what it was that that I actually think that this format of graphic novels and comics having a more expansive reach in the United States, is probably going to happen. Uh, I might have been, as they would say in, my, in, in, in the world of politics, I might have been a little ahead of the voters. <laughs> or using a surfing
0: metaphor, paddling a little too early for the wave. Which, uh, right, right. Which, Same w- thing. Which sometimes means you don't catch a wave. In investing, it sometimes means you paddle right into the impact zone and then get smashed. Now, you mentioned, you mentioned politics. I wasn't going to go here right away. Oh, boy. Okay. But – and I'm going to get there in two hops. But – so I'm looking at in front of me the Yale Law and Policy Review, volume 8, number 2, 1990. And it says
1: this, at the top – like This is like a deposition now. What, this, what do you – do you have like exhibit A? I'm, are you, are you gonna, I'm, am I going to – did I say something 30 <laughs> years ago that you're going to make me pay for right now?
0: I'm auditioning indirectly albeit for my my role on true tv as talent but this won't go into any incriminating territory unless you volunteer something along those lines (laughs) which i which i doubt will happen but it says on top editor-in-chief daniel h pink so how did fate intervene that you are not currently in the legal
1: profession oh my god Uh, this is one area where i want to thank fate for her (laughs) her grace and kindness um Here's the thing. I, I, I went to law school and uh, I went to law school largely because I was a middle class kid from the middle of America. And that's kind of what you did. And once I sort of saw the inside and it was a terrible decision and it, and it actually helped me figure out how to make better decisions. Um, it gave me some actually really good Advice on how to make better decisions. But I basically went to law school without knowing what lawyers did or even what law school was. It was just something I did because that's what I was supposed to do. I found out I didn't really like it very much. And I and once I found out what lawyers actually did and God bless the lawyers listening to this. But once I found out what lawyers actually did, I was like, oh, you you hire somebody else to do that. You know, it's like like, you know, it's like I mean, it's like it takes like it takes skill to like plunge a toilet or, you know, you know, uh, that kind of thing Um, or, you know, uh, uh, mow a gigantic backyard. I mean, it takes skill to do that. It's just that, you know what, it's it's really not my thing. And so what I'd rather do is do something else and then pay someone else to do that kind of dirty work. Um, And yet I found myself stuck. And because I was risk averse, I didn't I did leave for a little while. Actually, I, I dropped out for a little while, but I came back. Um, and, um, and so I went through law, so I went through law school. It wasn't a, you know, accumulated massive, 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 massive student loans, but I was very fortunate in two dimensions in my law school trajectory. One was that my school had a, uh, very, uh, ahead of its time loan payback program, uh, key to salary. So if you made less than a certain amount, they would offer assistance in repaying your student loans. And that gave people much more. Nobody, not many people took it, but that gave you theoretically more uh, career flexibility if you decided not to practice law. The other thing is that I met my wife in law school. So it's, it's, um, it's a decision that ended up having a profound positive effect on my life.
0: How did it help you learn to make better decisions?
1: The law, the, going to law school?
0: Right, right. You said that. Oh, well,
1: here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, here's what it did. Here's what it did. Here's the thing. I, okay. So there's this principle in social science it has a fancy name but it is something that we all do and something that we should do it is the principle of surrogation okay how do you make decisions you use the principle of surrogation and surrogation basically means find someone like you who made this decision and see what happened to him or her um that is find out what it's really like it's again this is a totally fancified way of something that is very commonsensical what you know should i go to this restaurant well let me check the yelp reviews of 47 other people who've gone to this restaurant and what i did it's amazing to me tim when i think about this and and it's advice that i give to my own kids as well i went to law school literally having never spent a day not a day 10 minutes talking to a lawyer about what she did. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that, but that's absolutely the case. I went to law school having never sat in on a law school class. I mean, it's unbelievable to me in retrospect. And, and so had I done those kinds of things, I might've approached it more skeptically. Um, but I didn't do those things. And so, uh, and, and because that ended up being an incredibly expensive decision, even though, it led to some, you know, it basically, I mean, it led to the most positive thing in my life, which is my wife, even though it led to something positive, it was a terrible decision. So now I'm, I'm sort of a, um, a surrogation, uh, a ideologue, you know, it's like, I believe in surrogation for everything, um, <laughs> um, largely because I got bitten by that bad decision.
0: Could you give us an example of at some fork in the road or some prospective decision where you've used surrogation? Or where you're planning oh, sure. on using it? Uh, so
1: okay, okay. So I'll give you an example of it. So um, again, it, it's you know again, we're not talking rocket science here. We're talking like basically, hey, act like a reasonably intelligent grown up is is what I'm is you know is basically what I'm what I'm doing here. But let's go back to the uh, let's go back to the Japan I uh, thing. So I got a fellowship to go to Japan, and I went with my wife and her and her kids, as I mentioned. But before I did that, I talked to you know six different people who had the same fellowship before I accepted, six different people who had the same fellowship, what it was like for their kids, what would, what the work was like, what the living was like before I made the decision. Now, again, that is not a monumental intellectual breakthrough, but it's something that I didn't do when I was much younger.
0: Well, it's it's a best practice that can often get skipped, right? Whether that's something like this or something that should be very straightforward. If you look at, say, Atul Gawande's work in the checklist manifesto and checking various things to avoid bacterial line infections in a hospital, right? It's very straightforward, but if you neglect it (laughs) over time, bad things are going to happen. but
1: But it's also the, you know, I think that as, as I've gotten older and gotten more experience, I've actually, um, become much more aware of the importance of intellectual humility and like what you know when i was when i think of when i was younger i feel like, well I, I know what law school is like how do you know well i just know because I, I thought about it once and so i know uh, i know what lawyers do because like uh, i met somebody who was a lawyer and i know what lawyers you know and so there's a degree of arrogance in that of thinking that you know something when you actually don't and so if you approach all kinds of decisions with a degree of intellectual humility and ask yourself what don't I know about this? Where are my blind spots? And then I think you end up making better decisions.
0: Definitely. Uh, speaking of blind spots, I promised I would segue into politics, and that is somewhere uh, I have very, very little confidence in any of my knowledge or expertise. How did you so – Because I was looking at what I believe to be one of your first articles that really – I'm not going to say put you on the map. That's too, too much of an overstatement, but the, the free agent nation – article of Fast Company, which was at the yeah. end of nineteen ninety twenty 20 years ago. Yeah, 1997. Yeah. And in the bio, or the byline, rather, of that article, it says, yeah. until recently, chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore. So where did you go from law school, or dropping out of law school for a period of time, to speechwriting for then Vice President Al Gore?
1: Well, when I graduated from law school, I was actually very keenly interested in politics uh, It was probably my deepest interest at the time, and I said, "You know what i'm going to go work i'm going to work in politics why and, why was it interesting uh, to you at the time uh, a couple of reasons number one is that I thought um it be it was a venue for for achieving something in the world and making a contribution to the world. The other thing is that I found the actual practice of it quite exciting and interesting in the way that sports is exciting and interesting, so it was a combo platter for me um And uh, and I'd been interested in it for many, many years. And I said, okay, this is this is what I this is what I want to do. So I got out of law school and I I started working on political campaigns, which at the time I liked because political campaigns are totally interesting. I mean, again, it's like a sport in that there's it's you know, there's a beginning and there's an end and there's a very clear outcome Uh, and it's exciting and you're making decisions on the fly and. I find political campaigns more than other kinds of organizations and institutions fairly meritocratic because there's so much going on. and so much crazy stuff happening that if you can do something, you will continue. To, you'll you'll be asked to do it again. And that's pretty much what happened to me and that someone at some point asked me to write a speech and I did it and it was OK. And then they said, hey, that's OK. You want to do it again? And I did it again. And then I did it a third time. And all of a sudden, that was my job. Um, and. <laughs> And um, and it, it ended up being something that I, I had a certain affinity for, and um, and it's something that a lot of other people did not. And so just in the supply and demand of who has to do what, that's what I ended up doing. And I and I enjoyed it. I did it on political campaigns. I did it for uh, a cabinet secretary, uh, and then I ended up doing it for the I ended up doing it for the vice president. And uh, the, the the trouble was is that when i had spent all these years in the belly of the beast you know it's sort of like wow i really want to work in politics and all of a sudden in a pretty kind of half-assed way i was at a pretty good gig in the belly of the beast Um, i realized hey i'm not sure this is my thing Uh, i thought this is my thing but i'm discovering that this is not my thing and it was even worse is that if i project out even further. Um, and look at, say, what I'm going to be like or what I'm going to be doing in 10 years or 20 years, I really don't like that picture because I see some of those people around me.
0: Hmm. Now, is there anything besides the projecting forward, looking at the people who had been in the game, so to speak, for a longer period of time and saying, wow, I could see myself filling their shoes and I don't like what that looks like. Was there anything else, any other indicators or moments that made you realize it wasn't for you?
1: There were a few things. Um, um, First of all, the the amount of B.S. that was involved was startling to me. I I expected some. But the if you do if you do a pie chart of B.S. and not B.S., the B.S. (laughs) slice is is extraordinarily large, larger than larger than you would larger than you would imagine um, on a number of different dimensions. And here's the thing, Tim. I freaking lucked out too in who I was working for because my last two jobs, I worked for Al Gore, who's a very smart guy and a very good guy all around. And uh, before that, I worked for the then labor secretary. I was a speechwriter for the then labor secretary, a guy named Robert Reich, who's a very smart guy and a good guy. So I had basically the best kinds of bosses you could possibly have. Um, And so that was another indication. Like I got the best bosses you could possibly have. And I still like, Hmm, it's not the species of reich or gore I don't like. It's the genus of politics that is actually <laughs> bringing me down, you know. And so uh, and so among the things that I didn't like, uh, let's go back to the BS. Uh, there was an enormous amount of enormous amount of time spent basically um, um, in the air in almost everything that was going on within the boundaries of the law is like concern for basically pandering and fundraising. Um, it was really quite remarkable. The other thing is that I also felt like a lot of the, like a lot of the people who were good people that they were so interested, they were so absorbed in the mechanics of things that they I, I felt like I was losing sight over like what were we doing here in the first place? Right. Uh, what did we actually What did we actually believe in? That the uh, and there was so much short termism, so much short term. Insane kind of posturing and and oh, let's get this slight advantage over the day Um, And um, and it was like, what's the point? You know, what's the point of all this? I'm working really really hard and I'm not sure this is I'm not sure we're actually doing that much and here's the scary part is like that was 20 years ago in retrospect, those are the good old days, right? I mean, you ha- you have, I mean, you, you you know, we were, I mean, I'm old enough. I did this long enough ago where I would be, I'd be pumped when something I wrote made it onto the the quote unquote evening news. I haven't watched the evening news for 19 years, you know. Um, uh, we weren't dealing with social media. Um, the world was very, very, very partisan then, but nothing like the way it is now. So I remember devoting a couple of days in my office to some subpoena that was given to Gore's office for finding some document about some nonsense thing. And I'm like, and, I, and I'm like really concerned about that because I didn't do anything wrong, but it's like, oh my God, if I have an email that mentions X, Y, or Z and I don't find it, and then someone else finds it, like I'm going to have to hire a lawyer and I didn't sign up for this garbage. So, um, so I finally decided to, I finally, yeah. So, so again, this thing that I thought I was deeply, deeply interested in once I actually experienced it, I found myself far less interested in it than, than I would have suspected. If you had told me that when I left that job, if you had told me 10 years earlier, you're going to have this job and you're going to leave it because you're, you're tired of politics. I would have been very, very surprised.
0: And if you, if you look back at that experience, the skills you either had natively or developed, uh, how do you prepare your speeches now, or or maybe if we take an example of a speech that you've given that has received very positive feedback, or really, from your perspective, engaged the audience, how do you pre- how do you go about preparing a 30 minute, 60 minute speech? what does What does that look like? Is there any example that
1: you can give us? Yeah, I mean, it, it 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 depends. I mean, actually, that experience writing speeches was actually extraordinarily useful in going out and you know being a writer and then going out and talking about what I've written about. I mean, it's extraordinarily useful. I mean, if if for if for no other reason, Tim, it was because you know I spent a lot of time as a speechwriter um, watching audiences react,
0: right. seeing what
1: worked and what seeing what worked and what didn't, and that I think has a that completely. Uh, left an imprint on me. Um, again, I was able, uh, you know, I had this before I went out on doing it myself, I spent, you know, as much time as any human being could have done, like watching speeches being given. But I always would watch whenever, when any of my bosses would give a speech, I would actually watch the audience rather than my boss, um, to see, because that's how I learned how to get better at it. Hey, that line works. Hey, that line's a dud. Hey. They're spacing out here. Hey, this, this person over here looks confused. Um, wow. This went on too long. Wow. This could have gone on a little, well, I've never had the experience that it could have gone on longer, but this, you know, <laughs> this, this could, have, this could have, seriously, you know, this could, have we could have, we could have, we could have, we could have cut it out there. Um, and so, um, so seeing audiences react just gave me, uh, I mean, it's hard to, it's almost like, um, let me think of an analogy here Um OK, I mean, this is an imperfect analogy, but it's almost like um, um, I'm going to go um, basically walk up and down the streets of uh, Santiago, Chile for a couple of years. I'm not going to do any talking, but I'm going to listen to everybody else talking. And it's like, whoa, you can learn some Spanish that way. It's not going to be you're not going to be perfectly Spanish, but you, you have a huge advantage of someone if you do that and then go and say, hey, I think I'm going to learn how to speak Spanish.
0: It also makes me think of a, uh, a, a very useful feature for potential speakers, although it's probably not worth the labor for the TED organization, would be to take the camera C that's always pointed at the audience and give you the option of, of listening to TED Talks while watching the audience <laughs> respond.
1: That's an interesting idea. That's an interesting idea. I mean, they, they, they do cutaways on those kinds of things, but the cutaways don't show people being bored. Um, right. Right. That's exactly. Actually, that's actually that's actually more revealing than any than than anything else. And I'll tell you, like from the a speech givers point of view, and it's interesting you you raise this, Tim, because I haven't really thought a huge amount about it myself. But one of the things that I enjoy most about giving talks is seeing the audience's reaction um, and figuring out what's good and what isn't so if i come up with hey i got this killer line i just thought of this is going to totally rule and then i deliver it and it's like whoa that bombed um <laughs> and in, in my head I, I don't feel like oh i'm so sad that it bombed but in the back of my head i'm like huh that bomb that's so interesting i got to make a note of that like that one bombed you know um and why is why did that one bomb did people not understand it was it was it obnoxious Um, and so I love that part of, and when you give speeches, when you do something in real time with people, or really anything before an audience. So if you and I were talking before a live audience, we would be getting feedback on our conversation that I would, that I think would be really useful and, and interesting. And when you do things that are asynchronous, as we're doing now, or writing a book, which is asynchronous, you get that feedback much later. And so the feedback is less, is less meaningful. So if I, um, Uh, if if I write something and someone says, you wrote this passage here, I just don't get it. Um, that's sort of a bummer for me because I don't have time to cure it. But if I say something before an audience and I get a bunch of blank looks, I immediately know, wow, okay, I didn't explain that very well. I got to go back next time around and get explained it better. So I, I've
0: so many different questions I want to dig into related to what you just said. The, The first is, actually, uh, connected to something we were talking about just before we hit record. And that was, uh, you having listened to the interview I did with Brian Koppelman, the screenwriter, yeah. uh, filmmaker, co-creator of the, the hit show billions, among many other things. And his penchant and recommendation for forensically studying Film, watching yeah. films with a notebook in hand and taking notes on what worked, what didn't, his responses and so on. And you, you mentioned a number of different questions and cues that you might ask yourself while uh, watching in your speechwriter days, the audience, while you're essentially your boss is giving a talk. Would you be right. writing those things down? Uh, would, you, would you be sitting there kind of with a, uh, a notebook in hand recording this this type of thing?
1: Um, what I would be uh, what I would often be doing would be um, I would have. OK, so if, if I had a, if it was a speech where I had a written where there was a written text, which is not always the case in some cases for for lower key, for, for less significant things, it would be, say, you know, a conversation and some talking points and some things like that. You know, uh, that, but, but let's say for a speech that was actually delivered, that is a, a speech that was written out and then delivered, um, you know, behind a podium. I would almost always have the actual physical text of the speech and I would mark up that physical text of it. So, so in, in some cases, because it was helpful for me in terms of just relating to my own boss, let's say that he skipped a paragraph. I like, Hmm, I wonder why I skipped that paragraph. You know, maybe ask him about that or maybe I could even figure out why he skipped that. You know, he, skipped, he didn't even bother reading a paragraph or he skipped a line or he ad-libbed a a new version of the line. That was actually very helpful to me in terms of just dealing with my boss. Because again, what you're trying to do in 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 writing a speech for somebody else is that you're you're trying to make that person sound like the best version of him or herself. And so it could be that the way I phrased something didn't sound like him, but he knew what I meant and he was able to phrase it in his own words. And that that actually was helpful for me in terms of doing the, 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 the tactical craft of my job. Um, but so I would have the, t- I would have the text with me and let's say there was a joke, you know, I would say, I mean, it basically would, would like plus I mean, seriously, like plus and minus, you know, um, and say, Hey, that joke worked. That joke didn't work. That line worked. That, that line, that line didn't work. Um, and one of the things that it taught me was also is that you don't go based on, uh, I mean, I'm, getting in the weeds here a little bit, but you don't make, Permanent decisions based on one reaction, and I, I do that myself now in my own stuff. So if I say something and it doesn't work the first time, I don't say I don't abandon it then. I make a note of that and then I try it again because sometimes different audiences, different contexts, different things it, it can work. But um, so but but I yeah I I, w- I would do that. It was just sort of you know and here's the thing I don't want to sa- make this sound like like I use the word forensic to talk about what compliment is doing mine was less forensic. It was more, um, hygienic. It was, to me, it's like, that's just like good staff hygiene. You know, (laughs) I, you know what I mean? I wrote a speech and this, and this dude is delivering it. I should pay attention to like how it's going, you know? And if I do that, if I do that, I'm going to do better next time. And he's going to do better next time.
0: If I look at the, my own writing, the writing that I've done that has, has received the best response we will just keep it broad. Nine times out of 10, it's something that I have tested and honed in some speaking format, whether it's a presentation <clears> or a class or something else, which is part of the reason why if, if I'm giving a talk or doing an interview in front of a live audience, I always ask them to raise the house lights. Because for whatever reason, a lot of venues like sure. to really dim it down, but then you can't see the response. <laughs> so, so I, I always totally ask to that. raise the house lights when you are testing out a speech or an article or a chapter on someone else. Uh, what types of question? What are you looking for? Or what types of questions do you ask? You can pick any of those that, that you'd like. But what type of questions okay. do you yeah,
1: ask? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me take your simple question and complicate it. Let's uh, go for because it. I <laughs> because I actually think that that speeches and written words are different things. Okay, um, and so uh, so the way that I would convey an idea in a speech is going to be different from the way that I would convey the similar same idea in a book. Um, and so um, so so in, so so for me um, like one of the most important, like I'd I say it's a, it's a simple question, but, uh, and I, I find myself asking it all the time to people is this following question. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Um, or what I've sometimes found an easier way to rephrase that is this is actually, I think this is actually a useful. Uh, uh, ha- a writing hack is what about that doesn't make sense? Yes. I so think that's people, a great question. I think that people, I think that people are more likely to say, does that make sense? They're, you know, sort of out of politeness and also just out of self. Oh, of course that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, but sort of what about that? So I, I converted a little bit. What about that? What about that doesn't make sense with when you give us when you when you when you explain an idea to somebody or you're talking to a, a, an audience? Uh, I really think I mean, maybe I'm overestimating my own abilities, but I, I really think you can tell by the looks on people's faces. Um, there are all other kinds of markers of that, too. So. For instance, um, um, you know, especially now, if you have slides, what are people taking pictures of? All right, what are, what, what slides are they taking pictures of? What things are they writing down? Um, so I look at those kinds of cues in, in 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 talks. I think writing is is more difficult, and I'll tell you what I do in, in writing, especially books. And this is a little bit insane, uh, or it's, it's I mean it's insane in the sense that you it requires it requires someone who is Deeply devoted to you in a way that someone you truly love is devoted to you. So uh, here's the, here's the thing about my books. Um, I even though I'm even though I just said speeches and, and written words are different for me. I actually improve my writing by listening to it, not because I listen to written words different from the way I listen to speeches. If that makes any sense and so when i write books so the latest book i mean you know latest book in all the previous books um i i, I have an office here behind my house in washington dc it's a garage refurbished garage and for i will sit in my office and i'll give you, let's talk about the latest book okay just to give you an idea so this is a book i don't know it's like 280 pages something like that um i read every word of that book out loud to my wife at various stages. What's what's more, I read drafts, multiple drafts of chapters out loud to my wife in this office. But wait, there's more. <laughs> my my wife read every word of this book out loud to me, including drafts, because for me that's how I that's how I process the that's how I process the written word. So for me, I can tell what works in a speech because you have a large audience of people behind, you know, reacting to it when in, in terms of written words like I I don't know. It's just like, I, you know, after all these years, I know what's good and what's not when it comes to the written word. And I actually know what's not good really is what I know. And so I try to remove all the not good stuff. Um and uh, and w- the way i do that in this a very laborious way is to read aloud because that helps me look at the words a different way but also to have them read aloud to me now what's amazing to this and, and shows you just how incredible and awesome my wife is is that i am the worst person on the planet to be read aloud to because i'm a complete pain in the ass when it comes to especially if you're reading my my words Oh, come on. You got to read with more expression than that. Oh, come on. No, the emphasis is on that word. No. Um, My saintly saintly wife has done this for several, several, several books now.
0: Wow. She's a keeper. Uh, I, so I've I've only, I suspect this is more common than uh, either of us might expect, but uh, John McPhee, the uh, nonfiction writer also writes. I think he still writes for the New Yorker. Fascinating guy. But I took a seminar with him in undergrad, and he also explained how he reads all of his work. I believe he reads not only really? his feature works but his articles out loud to his wife.
1: Really, yep. I actually did not know that.
0: Yep, yep. So this
1: is well, so, yeah. So I'm in pretty good. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, I'm in. I'm in pretty good company. You're in. You're I, in good I, company. I I started reading I started reading John McPhee when I was like a like uh, a pretty, you know, like a young teenager. And one of the best McPhee books I've read was a book you might have read it called Levels of the Game. You know, I
0: was it's so good. It's so, so good. Maybe you can. Just I love
1: that book. I yeah. read it again. I actually read it again uh, about two years ago, but I read it. I read it as a kid. Um, you know, I got it out of library i spent a lot of time in libraries when i was a kid and and i don't know how some librarian or somebody told me about it because there was a because he has that famous book about bill bradley a sense of where you are so i read that because i was a basketball fan and it's like oh i was also a tennis fan it's like oh you read about tennis too and i read that book and i didn't you know at at the time I, i guess i was i was saying wow you can actually write about sports in a way that's kind of more interesting than just sports Um, That's a remarkable book. I mean, I I can explain it quick. So it's a a story about a match between a single tennis match between Arthur Ashe, uh, who then was very young, just out of Richmond, and a guy named Clark Gravener, who was from a uh, wealthier white guy, wealthier family in, I think it was like suburban Cleveland. And what he does is he basically describes the match. But throughout, he pulls back and tells each of their stories of how they actually got to the court that day i think it was the u.s open a u.s open match and so he actually describes them playing a point and then he pulls back and talks about how arthur ash got there and he pulls back and talks about how clark gravener got there and he does it with such elegance and such concision it's just a it's a it's a joy to behold it's it's truly
0: spectacular and for those who haven't read mcphee you should if not for any other reason that he can take any subject matter you can imagine uh, and make a riveting book about said subject. It could be oranges, Plymouth Rock. Yeah, well, the, uh, the oranges
1: book. The oranges <laughs> book is great. I read that when I was
0: a kid too. <laughs> carved like, you know, hand like, carved canoes, uh, geology. Yeah. It just yeah. it, you name the topic, and he can turn it into a page turner. But levels levels of the game is is just spectacular. And one one thing that McPhee is very very good at is and i think this is also shared territory with you is asking questions given the nature of his writing uh, a a very significant portion of his time is spent interviewing and Mm -hmm. what about that doesn't make sense is a really powerful tweak on the maybe alternative that you mentioned which is does this make sense right or does Mm -hmm. this make sense or not and i i i this this may be digging too far into the weeds but I was really fascinated to read about an approach uh, that, that you've detailed in one of your books called motivational interviewing and oh, I yeah. and I hadn't heard of this before uh, but the the example that stuck out to me and, and you don 't have to give this exact example but was uh, asking a student who is seemingly struggling with algebra uh, uh, a, a A certain question, instead of others. Uh, I don't want to butcher it, but I can certainly also I have it in front of me, so I can pull it up if need be. But can you explain for people what motivational interviewing is, and maybe give an example?
1: Yeah. So this is actually a it's it's a therapeutic technique uh, that actually I, I think has wider applications. And I heard about it from a fellow named Mike Pantalon, who's at at the uh, Yale school of medicine uh, who used it in, in, uh, I think, uh, addiction, addiction treatment. And it, it's basically like this. So let's say that, um, um, let's say that you have, uh, let me think of a good example here of something that somebody typically isn't that keen to do. Um, um okay, let's, let okay, let's, let's say, let's, let's, let's go to algebra. Let's say you have somebody, let's say you're a parent and you have a kid who's in eighth grade and, um, he uh, has an algebra test and doesn't want to study for the algebra test, isn't into it, doesn't want to do it. And so, you know, a typical reaction from parents, from anybody an authority figure is like, what the hell is wrong? You know, you know, start saying to sort of demanding, start demanding compliance and motivational interviewing is almost the reverse of that. So it basically. So let's say you have a kid named Bob. You could say, you know, um, uh, hey, Bob, um, I see you're not studying for your algebra test um, let me ask you a question. I, you know, I I see you have an algebra test tomorrow on this, on a scale of one to 10, how ready are you to study for your algebra test? How ready are you to start studying for your algebra test? All right. How much do you want to start studying for your algebra test? And Bob is totally unmotivated by it. Bob might say, I'm a three, Uh, right? A three out of 10. Now, again, our reaction as bosses, as parents, as people and figures of authority is basically is to say, what do you mean you're a three? You should be a, you know, But instead, you're more chill than that. And you say, "Okay, you're a three. Uh, Why didn't you pick a lower number? And that always that always wakes people out. So he says, I'm a three out of 10 in in terms of my desire to do this thing. And you say instead of saying, oh, my God, you should be a nine. What are you crazy? You lazy ass. You say, oh, why didn't you pick a lower number? And what's interesting about that is that is what it does to Bob is that Bob has to now say why he's not a two. And so he begins saying things like, well, you know, if I don't study for this test, um, I'm probably going to bomb the next test. If I don't master this material, it's going to be harder to go into later on. If I don't do well in this test, you might hassle me. And so what happens is, is that Bob begins articulating his own autonomous, intrinsically motivated reasons for doing something. And that's the key. And what we know from a mountain of, of social science research is that when people have their own reasons for doing something, they're more likely to endorse the behavior and they're more likely to carry it out. And so this becomes a way to surface Bob's own motivation for it um, through questions rather than through rather than through dictates. And it, it can be a very, very powerful technique. You can also turn it inward. Um, you know, you say, well, how, how 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 ready are you, Dan, to finish this chapter? Oh, God, you know, I'm like a three. Then you say, well, Dan, why aren't why aren't why aren't you a two? Oh, uh, you know, and so anything you can do to help people surface their own reasons for doing something makes them more likely to commit to behavior, more likely to follow through on the behavior.
0: That last extension is really important. I I, I had been prepping this and reading the background, some of it, and it didn't even occur to me that you could yeah, apply it to yourself and use sure. it for journaling or something like that to uncover or maybe uh, rediscover the motivation that drove you to start it in the first place, even though you lost sight of it or it petered out or whatever the hell it might be.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could, you could use it for going to, you could use it for, you could use it for, you could use it for going to the, um, you know, going to the gym or going to, going to work out. Like how, like, you know, how ready are you? How, how, you know, how excited are you about how motivated are you to work out right now? I'm a two. All right. Well, I said it to myself, well, why aren't you a one? Well, You know, I know that probably I'll feel better if I work out rather than if I don't work out. I know that actually um, um, if I don't do this aerobic exercise today, I'm probably going to, you know, might not have a chance to do it tomorrow, which means I'm going to feel like crap. Um, And so you can you can turn it on yourself as well. It's all about those surfacing. You know, uh, you know, one of the things that we've done in in management and parenting and all in all other realms of life is that we have over we've overdosed on control. Um, and control is not an effective way to motivate people for important things. Um, because human beings only have two responses to control. They comply or they defy. And that's a history of humankind. It's basically human beings either complying or defying with control. Uh, and so we, we need to abandon control as a motivator and look for ways for people to summon their own autonomous motivation for doing things.
0: So, we talked at the very top of this interview about Johnny Bunko and how uh, you were ahead of the voters in a sense. It didn't quite catch. You might have been a bit early with the manga format. In contrast, A Whole New Mind seems to really have resonated strongly and it did catch. So, I'd love to try to deconstruct why that was the case. And as one example, it appealed so much to Oprah Winfrey that she gifted, I want to say, 4,500 copies to the Stanford graduating class of 2008 when she did her commencement speech there. Why do you think that is? And the subtitle I should just mention is a whole new mind subtitle, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. Why did this one take?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think a reason that it took uh, is that it was um, a fairly original idea. Uh, uh, conveyed in a way that was easy to understand and also had the advantage of probably being more right than wrong. Um, so, uh, so the idea in that book is the following that I, that I was arguing then, I still believe it today that the structure of our brain offers a metaphor for describing the future of work. And, um, the, you know, all your listeners know, there's been a lot of stuff written about left brain and right brain over the years. Most of it's just total garbage, but one of the um, one of uh, what we know about our brains is that they're actually somewhat efficient, and then over time they've, they've divided up tasks. So the left hemisphere specializes in one set of tasks, tasks that are logical, linear, sequential, analytical. The right hemisphere specializes in a different set of tasks, tasks that are about understanding context, about synthesis, um, and about um, simultaneous processing. And so um, that division of labor uh, in the brain, I think, offers a very powerful metaphor for understanding what was, what what I thought was going on in the world of work. And it continues to go on in the world of work. But actually, to make sure I got the underlying science right, in a tearing a page from the Tim Ferriss playbook, I actually went to the National Institutes of Health to get my own brain scanned, see my own brain in action, which ended up being a profoundly disappointing experience. But that's another story for another day. Um, and so um, basically, the idea here is this, that the abilities that used to be the most valuable in the economy, characteristic, it's a metaphor, characteristic of the left hemisphere, logical, linear, sequential, analytical, spreadsheet, SAT abilities, those abilities are still necessary, but they're no longer sufficient. And its abilities more characteristic of the right hemisphere of the brain. Artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking, those abilities are now the first among equals. And the reason for that is that is a very hard-headed reason that those kinds of abilities are easy to outsource easy to automate and that, that the that the left left hemisphere abilities, sorry the left hemisphere abilities the SAT spreadsheet abilities are easy to outsource easy to automate and less valuable in iterating something new uh, in dealing with the demands for new that comes from an abundant world and so um and so actually maybe another reason that took is that I basically came to a soft-hearted conclusion in a hard-headed way There was a very clear economic argument for that. You know, the three A's, Asia automation abundance, reductive left brain work can be done cheaper overseas. The other A, automation, it can be done faster by computers and now smart machines. And then finally abundance that our material needs have been satisfied and oversatisfied that there's a premium now in coming up with something utterly new and giving the world something it didn't know it was missing, uh, which is a very much of an artistic ability. And so- um, that's the argument in that book, and um, it's an argument I think that people resonated to because they were seeing inklings in their own life, and they needed a way to describe it, categorize it, put words on it.
0: Well, it seems like history has proven your uh, prediction or description very accurate at this point, for sure. And it also would, uh, it also occurs to me that this is, this is another place, uh, manga aside, where you and Kevin Kelly the founding editor of Wired magazine are very much on the same page. Uh, you mentioned something in passing, though, that I can't let go because I have to hear the separate story. Why was your brain scan disappointing?
1: Oh, uh, because um, it—you know—I looked at my brain. I was thinking my brain would be special, some kind. Of, it looked like every other brain I'd seen. Like I couldn't pick my own brain out of a lineup. Um, <laughs> so that, that's what it was. I mean, it's sort of—I I shouldn't say disappointing. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's humbling, you know, like the idea that here's the, here's my, I got this brain in my head. All right. And, uh, leaving aside the, leaving aside the, the thorny issue of where does the brain end and the mind begin or vice versa. Um, my brain is, a, is, is largely responsible for who I am. And yet when I see a picture of it, it's completely unremarkable and looks like every other brain that's being scanned that day. There's something kind of weird and humbling about that. <laughs> Disappointing, too. I don't know. I was expecting my brain would be cooler or something like that. To know.
0: <laughs> uh, looking, looking back at all of your books, do you find any commonalities or patterns? And, I mean, we can also forge all sorts of spurious correlations. Yeah. But looking at the books that seem to have struck a nerve – and those that, for whatever reason, didn't perform up to your hopes.
1: Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I think that when it comes to actual performance of things, um, you know, like how well a book does, that's something that's not fully. I mean, you know this. I mean, sure. anybody knows this. That's not something that's fully in our control.
0: Absolutely. And
1: and I'm and I'm actually, you know, I'm actually more or less okay on that. I mean, it's it's disappointing when something doesn't do as well as you want, but. To me, my criteria, my criterion is, did I write the best book I possibly could write? And once you put it out there, there's so many other variables. You just don't know whether it's going to take or whether it's not going to whether it's not going to take. Um, so, I mean, I wrote a book, you know, my fir- very first book was a book called Free Agent Nation. Uh, that was not a monumental that did OK, but it was not a monumental hit. It should have been because I think I was right. Um, um, but for whatever reason, I think it came out. Like, I think I, I think it just came out at the wrong. I think it came out at the wrong time. It should have come out slightly earlier. Um, and so so on that. So so to me, the, the you know, um, how well a book does uh, that's there's so much randomness in that. I'm not I try not to lose any sleep over it um, in terms of actual, you know, is there a through line among all the books? Uh, I, that's an interesting question. And I, I can say from the creation point of view, there is absolutely not a through line. Um There is no intentional through line through 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 these kinds of through these kinds of books. It's not as if I have mapped out somewhere on a whiteboard here in Pink Ink World Headquarters in Washington, (laughs) D.C., this like grand scheme to create the pink oeuvre in a certain fashion and a certain timetable with certain things covered like that. Far from it. I just go from one thing to another. I I just like figure out what I'm going to do next. Uh, And and as you know, Tim, I mean, writing a book is so difficult. It's so hard. It's so time consuming that if you're not in love with the idea, if you don't love working on it, you're going to it's going to be miserable for you. So so I just pick the next topic based on what I'm really interested in and what I want to spend a couple of of years, you know, a few years working on. Um, So I, I think it's possible that people can detect a through line that readers could detect a through line. Maybe they're seeing something that I'm not, but if there's a through line, it's visible only retrospectively. It's not something that was intentional.
0: What was, speaking of difficulty and writing process, what, what if there is a, a if, if you had to pick one, what has been the most difficult book for you to write and why?
1: Uh, I think it was this, I think it was the last one, the, la- the last book that I wrote. Believe it or not, you would think it would get easier over time, but it didn't. Um, so this last book, When, about the science of Tommy, that was the most difficult book to write. Um, partly because I went, to, I, I went into that book um, with, so I, went to, I, I started writing A Whole New Mind, having done the re- done some research and saying, hey, I think there's something going on here. Like, I think we're moving to this world, you know? And sort of, I had a theory of the case. With Drive, I had a, a book about motivation. I had looked at a lot of the research in motivation. I said, Well, wait a second. People are missing like a huge story here. With When, um, I went in totally with questions rather than with any kind of theory of the case. I basically said, hey, I'm making all kinds of timing decisions in my own life. I'm making them in a totally half-assed way. I'd like to make them in a better way. Could somebody please give me some guidance? And I started looking around for guidance and it didn't exist. And then I started looking at the research and I realized that across all of these domains of research, literally dozens and dozens, you from, from the hard sciences of molecular biology to endocrinology to the social sciences of economics and social psychology, uh, to many, many domains, these scholars are asking very, very similar questions. What's the effect of time of day on what we do and how we do it? How do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? And so I went in saying, wow, how do I make better timing decisions myself? But I didn't have a theory of the case. And so the volume of research for this one was so monumental. There were so many studies out there and there were so many different in so many different fields and fields that, like molecular biology is not a subject that is at my fingertips. All right. I had I spent so much time. I mean, I basically would read those papers. I would read them through and I would write down all the words that I didn't know the meaning of. And then I would look up those words and then I would read it again and I would read it a third time. And so very painstaking. Um, And then also because I didn't have a theory of the case, I just had questions rather than even a kind of skeleton or a shape of what I wanted to write. Um, I had to figure that out. So I probably did I don't know, 17, 18 different outlines um, of, of that, of that book. So that was, um, that was, you know, you would think it would get easier, but it actually got hard. It would actually got harder. 18 outlines.
0: What do, what do, what, what would such an outline Look like how long is it? What's the format? And oh, and- the, out,
1: the outline. Uh, when I say an outline, it's it's relative, relatively short, just like one or two pages. Nothing nothing too comprehensive. I guess outline is outline is is um outline is well, it's partly the right word because I'm a I I I'm a firm believer when it comes to speeches and when it comes to books, I'm a firm believer in structure and shape. Um, I think that those are what makes some things work. I think it's true for television shows. I think it's true for podcasts. Um, I think that structure Uh-oh. Shape, Uh-oh. <laughs> I think that, that structure and shape are very important, all right um, No, so here's the thing, Tim, I think your podcasts they don't necessarily have a structure, but they have a shape. There's right. no question they have a shape all right And so it's a, you know it's just a di- it's a difference between you know we can have you, you can have sculptures. Beautiful sculptures that have right angles and you can have other beautiful sculptures like a Henry Moore sculpture that has no right angles at all But it has a distinct and memorable and identifiable shape, right? So so um, but I'm a big believer in 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 structure and shape and um, So what I'm doing there is that that's basically just my search for how do you organize the ideas? and what's the shape or the structure of the final product going to be because once I see the shape I I can do a lot better work, but for this other book, you know, it's like, like I'm reading through 700 studies on all this kinds of stuff. And I'm like, good God, how do I even make sense of this? What do I put where I started thinking about organizing it? Do I organize this book about timing? Do I organize it basically the way that we organize time? So do I write about, you know, the hour, the day, the week, the, the week, the month, the year, the lifetime. And that's a really bad way to do it. But, I ended up
0: why is that that bad? How did you decide that was a bad approach?
1: Because um, um, for for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, the material didn't organize itself cleanly in that way. Uh, Number two, uh, that's that struck me more as a uh, like a handbook, like a farmer's almanac rather than uh, an intelligent book of science journalism with takeaways. Um, And more important, that's not a book I would want to read. And, you know, and so, so I, so I abandoned that, but I did, but did I really abandon it? Because I actually ended up writing a whole chapter in this book about the day. So I ended up cleaving off some of that and, and keeping it for, and keeping it for, for, for other things. And so, um, so it took me a long time to, it took me a long time to find the shape. And the way I find the shape is I basically write it down on either what I call big ass stickies is giant post-it notes or, um, or or on a whiteboard that I have in my office but I went through many 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 iterations and on that I have a somewhat social view of of that and that what I'll do is I'll I'll run it past people to see what they think um and say hey what do you think if I organize the book that way does that make any sense or um or what about that doesn't make sense or what am I missing here or what's the weak spot there uh, but it took me a long time to it took me a long time to find the shape of uh of this book that coupled with the fact that the the amount of research was so massive it was it was actually it was actually um it was actually the hardest book i've had to write
0: well you're doing the research as you're writing the book right in in effect it sounds like because you're coming into it with questions but then you're having to yeah digest all of the information that might lead or might not lead exactly. to answers while you're writing it yeah exactly
1: exactly very right. very, so, very hard and so and that's hard to write exactly you're so right about that that's hard to do too and a lot of people i mean you know as a writer it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's messier than that. There's this notion that I'm going to do my research. And then when my research is done, I'm going to do my writing. All right. Yep. And so <laughs> it, it never works that way. But, but when you have more questions and you have, when you don't know the shape yet, and you have still have a lot of questions, what happens is I'm going to do the research. Now I'm going to try to write down something about it. Crap. You know what? Now that I write it I realize I'm missing a whole thing here and I got to do more research. So let me go back and do that. So it's less of this kind of, you know, um, you know, happy march from, you know, uh happy jump from here's so I'm going to go from this lily pad to that lily pad and happily jump from each one to another like a delighted frog. There's a lot of
0: task switching. I, I that's exactly why the 4-hour chef for me was also by far the most difficult book among other reasons to write is that I came into it intending to try all of these experiments, ask all of these questions and write the book somewhat chronologically as I'm getting (laughs) answers. (laughs) And, uh, that was a very punishing way to approach things, but to, 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 look at the content. So going past the structure and looking at the, the content and the findings of when, uh, I, I was looking at an NPR interview that you did and uh, teasing out some potential ways that I could apply the content from this book into my own life. And I'm going to read a quote. You can feel free to correct it, but this is this is what I have as as one very clear example. And I'd love to basically, I'm going to ask you what types of decisions have changed okay. for you, or easy ways that people can think about making changes uh, related yeah. to timing. So here's one, and I'm gonna I'm gonna truncated a little bit, but quote, in a lot of this research and big data, you see systematically poor performance in healthcare settings in the afternoon. Example, the incidence of hand washing inside of hospitals dramatically drops in the afternoon. And that seems like a bad thing to me. Uh, <laughs> my voice, not yours. <laughs> you look at colonoscopies. Endoscopists find half as many polyps and colonoscopies in afternoon exams versus morning exams, even with the same population. Doctors are more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in the afternoon compared to the morning. And this seems. This is very, very actionable, right? If we are to trust the data, if the patterns, if the correlations hold, then you are certainly better off. It would seem uh, if you're if you want to risk mitigate. Uh, I'm not sure that was English. Risk mitigate. I think I swapped the first two letters. That's that has a fancy psychological term. Um, it's
1: a, it's called a, it's called in linguistics a tip of the slung.
0: <laughs> but, but <it's>,
1: yeah
0: <laughs> exactly uh and you you might come back to your undergrad and linguistics but uh what what are what are other examples related to the when the timing oh that, my god that, that people can, might be able to implement
1: oh my gosh there's so much stuff i mean the good news about this is that, is that when i did finally uh, wrestle the research to the ground and figure out how to structure it um it yielded so many great, great takeaways for, for readers. So, so, so take, take a step back. What we know from a mountain of research, it took me a while to figure this out, was, um, that we tend to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, peak, trough, recovery. Um, now most of us move through the day in that order. Um, people who are night owls, people who have an evening chronotype, they move through the day in the reverse order, recovery, trough, peak. But what we know is that, um, we, we know a few things about human performance over the course of a day. The most important thing, and this is a, this, I wish somebody had told me this before I was 50 rather than once I was 50, all right? Is that our cognitive abilities do not remain the same throughout the day. Our cognitive abilities change during the day and they can change in some dramatic ways and they can change in, they change in predictable ways, but how we perform depends on what we're doing, right? So what we know about the peak, which again, for most of us is the morning. For night owls, it's later in the day. What we know about the peak is that the peak is when we are most vigilant. And what does vigilance mean? Vigilance means we're able to bat away distractions. Um, and so when we're vigilant and can bat away distractions, that makes it the best time for analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus, writing a report, analyzing data, that kind of work. Um, there's no, that piles of research tell us that we should be doing our analytic work during the peak, right? The trough, that's the early afternoon and early to mid-afternoon. As you mentioned from the data on on healthcare, a lot of bad stuff happens then. I mean, you have uh, standardized test scores for students go down in the afternoon. You have, um, if you look at auto accidents, once you control for cars on the road, uh, obviously there are going to be more accidents when there are more cars on the road, but once you control for that, the most dangerous time to drive is 4 to 6 a.m., The second most dangerous time is 2 to 4 p.m. During that midday trough, um, we should be doing more of our uh, administrative work. We should be answering our routine emails. We should – I mean you've talked in the past, Tim, about batching. We should be batching our routine emails and answering them during the trough. We should be filling out our TPS report. We should be filling out our expense report, whatever. (laughs) That kind of stuff that we have to do during the course of a day doesn't require a lot of major cognitive power. Now, the recovery period, again, because this peak trough recovery is a pattern of mood that also is a pattern of performance. The recovery period is actually really, really interesting. During the recovery period, we have elevated mood. Our mood is better than during the trough, but we're less vigilant than during the peak. And so it's really important to think about that combo platter here. That is, you have – higher mood, but less vigilance. That makes it a good time for things like brainstorming, for for things like insight work, where if you're too locked down and focused, you're not going to be that creative. And so that that degree of looseness coupled with the elevated mood makes that recovery stage better for um, uh, what are called insight problems, uh, brainstorming, things that require iteration. And so what we see is that if if we recognize that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same over the course of a day, that they change in predictable ways, and that what we do, that when we do something, depends on what we're doing, we should be moving our analytic work to the peak, our administrative work to the trough, and our insight and creative work to the recovery. And it's that simple. And what the research tells us also is this, I mean, is that time of day explains about 20% of the variance and how people perform on cognitive tasks. So if you think about that, that's a big deal. Like we can explain the very, like if Fred, you know, if, you, if we have two people, you know, Maria and Sally, and they perform differently on cognitive tasks, how do we explain that? All right. We say, how do we explain that variance in, in how people perform, you know, Maria, Sally and, and you know, 18,000 other people perform on cognitive tasks. We say, oh, some people are smarter than other people. Some people are more conscientious than other people. Some people have more social advantage than other people. But what the research is telling us is that 20% of that variance is time of day. Right. Um, and so, and so, so what we should be doing is, and what we're not doing, is we should be making our when decisions in a strategic way, rather than in the lazy, haphazard way with which we tend to make our when decisions. And so, and you see this most glaringly, and this is my rant of the, of the, of the year, is you see this most glaringly with meetings in organizations. When we schedule meetings in organizations, the only criterion we use is availability. That's it. Who's available? Uh, We don't say, what kind of meeting is this? Is this a meeting where people have to be analytical? What kind of meeting is this? Is this about travel voucher policies? What kind of meeting is this? Are we brainstorming? Who's gonna be there? Are they gonna be morning people? Are they gonna be intermediate people? Are they gonna be evening people? We don't even ask those questions. We just say, who's available? and it's it's causing um it's it's one of the easiest things organizationally to fix, and it's something that at the unit of one individuals can be a lot more systematic and intentional about moving the right work into the right time slots
0: what What time of day do you generally wake up personally
1: um i I wake up a little after seven
0: and what is what is the first two hours of your day look like? Do you, do you have particular, any particular routines? Can you walk us through what that? Uh, yeah, might I look? don't,
1: I don't, I don't have the the detailed routines that, um, that you have, that you have written about that you actually have experimented with and uh, you know, things like, like, uh, journaling and meditation or anything like that. Um, here's what I do. I wake up. All right. I, I take a shower, a shower helps me wake up. So I take a shower. Um, I go downstairs and I feel better if I see a member of my family. So whoever happens to be awake, I might, I have two kids in college now, so I don't see them, but I have another kid who's still, still around. So I see him. Uh, I see my wife and, um, I like to have some protein for breakfast. Uh, if that's a ritual and caffeine, protein and caffeine are my, it's my preferred breakfast. Which, what's your go-to protein? Uh, you know what? I, I'm a, I probably eat more hard-boiled eggs than almost any other person in America. <laughs> I am keeping the hard-boiled egg industry in business. I think I'm single-handedly <laughs> responsible for the advent of hard-boiled eggs for sale in individually wrapped packages in airports. I really think so. Because once they, once they introduced that, I bought them all. And they go, oh my God, there's such demand for these hard-boiled eggs. Um, so um, I, was just, I was actually saying to my wife, I, I eat so many eggs, it's ridiculous. So, um, um, so I don't have a cholesterol problem, fortunately. Um, so, um, so, uh, hard-boiled eggs or, um, or, or peanut butter. And then, um, what I do is when I'm in my writing day, and this is actually something I did better having read this book when, when I'm on writing days, um, I will go to my office, which again is behind my house and I will not bring my phone with me. Uh, I will not turn on my email and I will give myself a quota. And that quota is usually is, is a word count. So call it 700 words. I'm a fairly slow writer. So you got these people out there who are like, all right, 3,000 words a day, and it's like, I don't think I've ever done that. Um, um and I'm, so I'm very very slow. I, I'm prob- yeah. I, may, I
0: may be slower than you are even.
1: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I'm slow and basically I'm I'm basically slow in every um in every domain of my life. I'm like just such a I'm a slow runner. I'm a slow reader. I'm a slow writer. I, 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 I really heavily scrutinized my 23andMe report to see if I had some kind of like tortoise gene in me somewhere that somehow like one of my ancestors in Latvia somehow mated with a tortoise at some point. <laughs> um, and so um, and so um, and so. So. But what, what I will do, though, is I will come in and give myself that quota and I won't do anything until I uh, hit that number. Um, and then then I'm free to do other kinds of things. Um, and then what I'll do is I always, you know, I'll, I'll have lunch, and then I will. Um, I like to do. I, I I have done a good job, especially after like this. This book changed the way that I organize my day, because I do my analytic work better in the morning. So this book basically this book impelled me to clear out my mornings to do that analytic work, which for me is writing. Uh, I stuff the administrative stuff off into the. Um, uh, to the to the midday and you know, the batched emails and that kind of garbage. And then I like to do interviews, um, especially when I'm interviewing, like for book interviews, I like to do those later in the day because I'm a little bit more. Um, I, li- I like the interviews to be a little bit more freewheeling. I'm not doing I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm not conducting a deposition. I just, you know, want to hear people's stories and what they think about stuff, and so you're not quoting think, the
0: Yale Law and Policy Review, Volume Eight, Number Two, 1990.
1: Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no. And so I'm not, I'm not, you know. So I want that to be a little bit more iterative. And then I, and, and then I actually end up exercising later. I end up exercising later in the day and in the early evening because I find that 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 works best for me. You said on
0: a writing day when you were on book deadline, yeah. how many? What is your week weekly structure? tend to look like? Do you, do you, is every day a writing day? Yeah. do you, how do you, yeah, when how I'm, do you when I'm writing a book,
1: Yeah. Cause I'm a, I'm a, I'm also, I'm also a momentum player. So, um, so for me writing every day is hugely important. Um, when I'm, when I'm working on a, when I'm working on a, when I'm working on a book or working on a long article. So I, I try to do that. I, I try to do that every single day, like, like seven days a week.
0: And do you have, do you have set periods of time between books do you decide in advance? I'm going to take X period of time until I investigate another book. What is what is your mac- uh, macro planning look like?
1: Macro planning, boy. My macro planning is neither macro nor planned. I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, that, that, I think that needs to
0: be on a motivational calendar somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, um, like for. Uh, um, I don't know. put it put it another
0: way. If that question yeah. sucks, which it might, uh, because it's also making a bunch of assumptions, uh, how do you decide when to take on new projects or new books? If if that's a better question.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I sort of go in. I sort of go in cycles. So I'm actually heading to that cycle right now. So I've spent a lot of time writing this book and trying to make it as good as as good a book as I can in terms of actually spreading the word about it. I try to do that with. You know, give the cliche, not leaving anything on the sidelines So doing everything I possibly can, being everywhere, being strategic about it all, trying new stuff, trying cool stuff, uh, trying to get some momentum behind behind the book. And then, you know, when that and when that sort of white hot center dissipates um, um, and the book, we hope, has some momentum of its own, uh, then I'll go back and figure out the next project, whatever that project might be. And the way I do that is I know this will shock you, Tim. In a slow, laborious way. Uh, and, um, so what I do is is I um, I have – I'm a sort of a – I use – I'll give you my mechanisms here. So I use – believe it or not, I use a lot of paper folders and I have a labeler. Um, I use paper folders and a labeler to label my folders because uh, I, 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 I was like a getting things done guy before getting things done was cool. Um, <laughs> the uh, I, I met I met David Allen like in 1997, um, and you know I bought a labeler like shortly after that. that I was going to
0: ask if he's if he's sending you your customary you know five percent royalties for your uh, oh, the the brainpower. You're like the guy who invented rollerblades or the gal you know 40 years before they became cool.
1: Oh yeah, no, no, I, I I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a GTD devotee. I'm not I'm not hardcore. I'm not like you know orthodox, but I'm not. I'm not reform, I'm not reform either, I'm sort of like in the middle. And so um, so, uh, so anyway, I have these paper files with labels and so when I read stuff or make notes to myself, I throw stuff in those, those files. I use Evernote and I also use Dropbox. Um, and I just throw ideas in there and then what I do is every six months or so, I go through those ideas uh, of like, hey, this would be a cool television show to do. Hey, this would be a cool article to write. Hey, this would be a cool book to write. And as I look at those ideas, maybe revisiting them every six months or so, uh, I realize that most of them are just God awful ideas. Um, one of my beliefs about the human brain is that, or creativity is that in order to have good ideas, you have to have a lot of ideas. Um, and so I have a lot of bad ideas, uh, which I think is the only way for me to surface any decent ideas. So I'll, I'll revisit those ideas and then when it comes, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll call, and what often happens when I call, is that a few ideas end up just staying there over and over again every six month cycle, and then when it's, I get to this point now, I'll, I will go back to all of those files and look more carefully and say, "Hey, I sort of have in my mind eye right now three possible projects," and and so I'll then I'll more heavily vet those projects, read a lot more, talk to people, bounce them, bounce ideas off of people, and um, and I like bouncing ideas off of people about which more in a moment. And, um, and then when it comes time to write a book, uh, I will actually write a book proposal. Um, even if I have the deal already done. So like I have a two book deal, like I have to, I have to write another book. Um, but I'll still write a proposal for this next book, maybe 40 page proposal, uh, which allows me to figure out, is there a there there? Is this something I really want to work on? Um, you know, uh, I think, I think a lot of things sound really good when you're just shooting the breeze. Um, they sound less good if you have to say can i can i explain this can i explain this idea who's going to buy it why it's cool why it's original why no one else is doing it uh can i explain that in a coherent written document that's a tougher order and so not everything lends itself to that and i will bounce ideas out of people so i had so actually it's funny you mentioned kevin at the beginning of the show um i had this one idea where i went out and i i went to I, i made the pilgrimage to uh, what is it? What do you call it, his town? Pacifica. Pacifica. Um, yeah. And, um, made the pilgrimage to Kevin's house and said, I got an idea. I want to run past you, uh, for a book. And Kevin was one of the people who said, that's not a very good idea. And, <laughs> and uh, and unfortunately he was not the only one who said that. And, or, um, or fortunately, and
0: depending I, on how you look at it,
1: I mean, if still- yeah, no, no. Actually, fortunately, you're right. Fortunately, he was he was not the only one who said that. So I, I abandoned I end, actually ended up abandoning that idea in part because he was another brick in the wall of people saying no, no, no. Let's pause
0: there for a quick second. Do you mind sharing? I don't think Kevin would care at all. Uh, what he or other people made his arguments against you pursuing this idea? And you can tell us what the idea was, where you can yeah, yeah, yeah. Blur, 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 I'm going to be, I'm going
1: to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be skittish about the idea. Um, uh, but let's just say it had to do with morality. All right, I wanted to write a book dealing with morality. Um, and 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 Kevin, who is a person of religious faith, who you know is extraordinarily well read, and among people who are very well read and very intelligent, there are, I think, there are a dearth of people who who have strong religious faith. It's um, just an observation. It's not like a uh, judgment one way or the other. Right. And so I thought he would be an especially good person to run this idea past. And um, and um, I guess he and others um, – the theory of, ca- theory of the case that I had, he and others had two cr- criticisms of it. And they are not insignificant criticisms, Tim. The first criticism was <laughs> – you're wrong. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> to begin with, <laughs> yes, you're wrong. All right, and the second per the second criticism was, you're right, but it's not interesting. So, <laughs> so those are two pretty like that's those are like those are significant critiques, right? Um, so um, so so that's so so that's how I so so that's 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 generally that's generally how I do things when I came up with this idea for when. Uh, it was an idea that was kicking around there, and one of the one of the ways that I knew it was a good idea uh, were, were were two things. Number one is that um, uh, when I was writing the proposal, when I was, first of all I was looking at the research, and I found myself wanting to do more research, which is always a good sign. It's like, holy crap, is that true? Well, what about ba And I go look at ba Oh my God, Ba said, you know. And so I found myself wanting to do more research. Uh, that was one thing. And then when I started writing the proposal for that. It it was like, for me, it doesn't happen very often, but there were portions of it that were just like butter. I could just explain it so clearly, like, here's what I'm going to try to find out and here's why it matters. And it was like it was like that, you know, that um, that scene in in Jerry Maguire where he sort of writes all night. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking the goldfish (laughs) minus the goldfish. Uh, I was. And I was doing handstands against the wall and everything like that. So, um, there and, and that's some that's sometimes that's sometimes a good that's sometimes a good sign. I think
0: it's a yeah that that lack of or overabundance of energy, I think is undervalued. Uh, how much the project
1: actually gives you more fuel yeah, totally. in the tank. Right, and I think that's a big. I, you know, here's the thing. I think a lot of writers. I think a lot of people who come out as journalists and and before I started writing books. You know, post speech writing, sort of, sort of as a, you know, and even the first time I was writing books, I did a lot of magazine articles, a lot of, a lot of magazine writing, long form magazine writing, which I, which I, which I like. And I found a lot of journalists who would write an article, the article would do well, and they would get a book offer and they would do the, they would, they would not pop, they would not properly vetted it um, about whether they want to, because there are a lot of ideas that you, you know, maybe want to go out on a few dates with. <laughs> but there are very few ideas that you want to go steady with, let alone marry and have kids and I think that books are basically you're marrying and having kids yeah. um and that's a very 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 high bar
0: there are a um, lot there are a lot of great articles that should stay articles and make oh my very God. mediocre books and uh you know i potentially i suppose not vice versa it's very rare that <laughs> you go in the opposite direction but
1: Article. oh uh, that's uh, it's so i mean it's so off i i, I read i read um i i don't want to say the name of it i read one of those this i mean it sent it for me a blur but i read one of those um uh, this weekend where somebody had an article it did really well they got a book deal they turned it into a book and it's like okay you know what this art this thing has so much more impact as an article rather than as a book um so, so i so what are
0: dig in a little bit on this tickler file that you review every six months yeah. because yeah. one of the most frequent questions i am asked is how do you pick projects how do you vet yeah. projects and uh, you mentioned revisiting every six months with so a few mundane questions in, within evernote do you have a specific notebook that is tickler file or something like that how do you keep track of all of these ideas
1: um i um i I can actually look that up right now. I could, what I do is I categorize them. Um, so, uh, so I I have, so what I have is I have a giant file called misc. All right. (laughs) I'm just like shards. Okay. But then I'll go through that and say, well, wait a second, let me think of an example here. Um, wait a second. Um, wait a second. Uh, I, um, wow. I I'm collecting a lot of articles about, um, Here's a book I'm not going to uh, like, it could be interesting. At one point I said, God, somebody should write a book about courage. All right. Like what about courage? What do we know about courage? All right. I'm not going to do that. I, if one of your listeners wants to go out and do it, God bless you. I think it could be really interesting. Um, so I could go into the MISC file and say, ooh, the MISC notebook, I guess that it's called, um, is uh, w- what do we know about courage? Uh, and I'll I, well, I go into the MISC notebook and I say, wow, I got a lot of articles about courage. What, that's going to gonna, gonna birth a, a separate notebook on courage. Uh, and then I organize it that way. Right. Um, so I'll have, uh, I'll have notebooks of misc and I'll have notebooks of, of particular ideas that, um, that, that I have, um, that end up being fuller because it's like, oh this, this one has stuck around for a little bit longer than others.
0: And, and you mentioned during these reviews, you might say, Oh, here's a cool idea for this. A cool idea for that. Oh, this could be really interesting. That could be really interesting. I would imagine, even after the the second glance and noticing that some of these ideas are coyote ugly, and you're like, "Holy shit! Yeah. How did I think that was a good idea?" Even after removing uh, the, the the flies in the soup, you still you still <laughs> like have that. yeah you still, like you still have way you could drown under the weight of these kind of cool ideas. Right? You have yeah. many things that could be interesting. How do you then? what are the parameters or thought processes, questions, anything that help you to get down to the three finalists?
1: Um, okay. So, so what do we, so, um, it would be, um, uh, what, uh, it's, it's really like, what would I want to spend a couple of years on? And so if I really sort of like, like maybe courage would be an example of that. It's like, I'm sort of interested in that. Um, but it'd be like, I would I would rather read a good book about courage than write a book about courage. <laughs> that, like I'm serious yeah, like no, like that sure. like that you, know what, you know what you know what I mean? Told and me. it's like and so when you when you go face to face with that and you start saying do I really want to do this then I think your your soul at some level tells you, "Hey, this is the you're into this, you're not you're not so you're not so into that." Um, and so that I think that's the I think that's the initial cut. Um, but it's also the one reason why I so to get to the three finalists is actually really kind of intuitive in a, in a, in a way. And, and there's no match number to three, it could be four, you know? Um, and, um, and, and so, but this is one reason why I will write, uh, uh, book proposals, um, because it just forces me to, it forces me to reckon with the idea and actually like make it real. And, and there's this principle that I learned in college I had a writing course in college, Um, and I actually ended up giving a commencement speech around this idea. I'll spare you that for now, but the idea was the the idea was following. It was a revelation to me when I was whatever 21 years old. So I had this so it was this writing it was this essay writing course, sort of higher level essay writing course, and I had a draft of an essay or something like that. I went into the professor. His name is Charlie Yarnoff. He still I went to Northwestern. He still teaches at Northwestern, and um, so Charlie. gave me some feedback and I said and I was like all insistent okay I can fix this I can move this part over here maybe I do another piece over here maybe I knew another piece over here and he's like no 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 Dan that's not your problem here the problem is that you don't know what you think that's that's why this essay sucks this draft of the yeah you don't know what you don't know what you think he didn't say sucks but he so that's why this essay that's why this essay that's why this essay stinks and then he said something to me and I and I don't want to I don't want to It to sound glorified or sound like something that is confected where a swell of music will come up behind me and this. But what he said, he said, but it's words I've never forgotten, truly. He said, sometimes you have to write to figure it out. Sometimes you have to write to figure it out. And that was a revelation to me because at the time I was in this mode, very kind of traditional schooling mode, where sort of like we were talking about before, you do your research, then you write, you make your outline then you write. And what he was saying to me is that, you know, the real writers are, it's more dynamic than that. Uh, sometimes you have to write to figure it out. And that was transformative for me. And so um, that sort of gave me permission to say, oh, I don't know, it. like, I can change my mind in midway writing something. I can start writing without knowing fully exactly what it is I'm going to say. And to me, that's the, um, that's, that's why I write book proposals, is that I write to figure it out. And, and a lot of times what I figure out is this is not a book or this is not a book I wanna write. So I had this one moment not met a few years ago where not a while ago now, actually 10 years ago, even more, where uh, my, my I, I sent, it was like winter, like late de- second half of December. And I asked, I said to my wife and, and I said, hey, why don't you just take our guys, our kids, three kids, just go see your parents, just go for a week, right? Uh, or two weeks or something like that, you know, go and like, I just, I gotta get a book proposal done. I just, I'm distracted. It's like, if you guys, when you guys, when my family leaves, it's like, I live like an animal, you know? Um, I mean, I eat <laughs> it's out. It's like, a, I, like I guess, a raccoon that got into the house. <laughs> no, truly. I mean, it is raccoon-like in that I, I literally eat out of containers, you know? So like my my family leaves, I eat out of containers, don't shave, and basically work around the clock except for a few ESPN breaks. That's basically what I do when my family is gone. And so... I will. Um, so I so I started. So I said, I'm going to write a proposal for this next book. And after about seven or eight days, I called Jessica at her parents' house. and I said, hey, I got some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news is that you can come home now. The bad news is that I realized this is not a book. Um, but it was only writing to figure out that, that allowed me to do that. So I actually wrote uh, uh, basically one and a half proposals before writing the when proposal uh, because I had a couple of ideas. And I said, OK, this is sort of interesting. But let me write to figure it out. And what I realized in, in you know, two very important things. One, it's not a book. Maybe it's an article. Uh, or two, it's not a book that I want to write. Um,
0: There's, there are a few things, raccoon behavior aside, uh, that I want to <laughs> follow up on. Uh, the first is just to, to highlight something for people listening. And that is how liberating it is to think about – writing as something you do not when you have your ideas ready but something you do to figure out your ideas absolutely because it when it, did
1: you when did you learn that
0: i it's been i would say reiterated it's something that is easy to forget particularly if you have or something that you will willfully forget if you have a perfectionist streak and a penchant for procrastination. So if you want to yeah. wait until all your ducks are in a row so you can go yeah. to the debutante ball pristine and yeah. blow everybody's socks off, uh, it's easy to forget this. But the, the <laughs> sounds like uh, you know the cat came back the very next day. I don't know if you know the song, but Kevin Kelly, just to incant his name again, yes, uh, indeed. He, he, is, he emphasized this to me. Uh, he's, he's such a prolific writer and emphasized this to me... Uh, a number of years ago, and uh, I, I want to say it goes back probably to McPhee, uh, who is also much like you, obsessed with structure. And uh, if there's a book, I think it's called Draft Number Four. Uh, about yeah, it his, just came out. It yeah. has some some really fascinating explorations of this for those people who really want to get into the weeds. He'll also do it graphically. He'll draw out yes. diagrams of what the yes. structure looks like, which appeals to me, but trying to stay on track here, uh, I would say Kevin is the most, well, you are the most recent person, but a number of years ago, Kevin emphasized that to me and probably before that McPhee. So it's it's really liberating, number one, to embrace that, even if you're not fully convinced it's the case. And uh, I also want to give a little bit of context for people who may not be familiar with book proposals. So book proposals in the world of nonfiction books well, I suppose I should take a further step back and say in the world of nonfiction, so if you're in if, uh, novels and fiction are totally different, in many cases, yeah. you need to, you need to finish that puppy before yeah. anyone exactly. will tell, tell you if yeah. your baby is ugly or not, which is, right. has to be terrifying. Uh, yep. <laughs> it must be in, in nonfiction, you create a book proposal before you write your book and the book proposal and feel free to interject at any point, but the book proposal is in effect a business plan and an overview, slash executive summary for your book. And there's there's a lo- you find with the best book proposals and the best startup pitches, which take the form of a deck, say a PowerPoint or something like that. Very often, they're they're exceptionally uh, similar. The, the 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 ingredients that make a good startup pitch and the ingredients that make a good book proposal are very similar. Uh, but uh, that that is. And I'd love to actually know what the structure of your book proposals look like. I mean, I know what ingredients I would potentially include in a book proposal. What does the table of contents look like for one of your book proposals?
1: Yeah, um, I'd have to go back and look. I think they vary a little bit, but they probably have some core design elements. Uh, One of them is – and it's questions that I want to ask myself, which is um, um, uh, what is this book – Uh, what's it about? Okay. Pretty simple, pretty simple question. Um, uh, why this is, I think the more important question is why does it, why does it fill a need that hasn't been filled yet? Which is basically very similar. I I, I use the same business plan analogy that you do on on proposals, but it's sort of like a business. Like why, why is it providing a, uh, uh, why is it filling a need that hasn't otherwise been met? Like, like where, like basically if you draw a map of the marketplace, um, what part of the marketplace of ideas is, does this, uh, does this cover that hasn't been covered? All right. Is it this, you know, uh, uh, um, so that, so it's, it's, you know, and I, I don't even mean it in, I, I sometimes will use the high concept. Um, I sometimes will use the high concept pitch of it's X meets Y, which I actually think is actually a very useful heuristic in figuring out ideas. So for instance, I pitched a whole new mind as, um, um, uh, Future Shock meets Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, which I thought it was a pretty good pitch. And so, um, very
0: common in pitching films, also. Just to yeah, it's really useful.
1: It's a heuristic, and it basically, to me, it says if you think about a map of the territory, if you think about a map of ideas out there, um, why is no one over here on this part of the map? All right, like, or show me, show me where, show me, show me where on the map your idea is. All right, and let's make sure that someone hasn't gotten there first. Uh, and then tell me why someone hasn't gotten there first. What are they missing? Um, and so in the case of when, for instance, I say, well, the reason they're missing is everybody thinks science timing is an art, but it's actually a science. Oh, OK, got it. That's why no one is there. Um, and, um, and so I'll talk about what's it about. Um, where does it fit into the marketplace of ideas? Uh, why is it original? And this is also really important. Who is it for? All right. And and the big mistake that that everybody writing a book and if there's one takeaway from this conversation for prospective writers out there, it's this. The mistake that writers make and I think business people make, too, in their in their pitches is when they say, who's it for? Who's the audience? Who's the customer? They always want to say everybody. And it's not. It's never everybody. All right. And and what I try to do is I have included a section of who is who is not going to buy that book. Like I will have a you have a section bullet. on who isn't the customer, right? I who is it. not, who is not going to buy this book? Because I think that that's the only way to think carefully about, because books are not a mass medium and even media products in general are no longer mass medium, mass media. They're no longer mass. And it's like, who is, and so I'll have bullets and they're saying, who is not going to buy this book? Um, and, um, um, and that and, and and that helps um and that helps define the audience too. And also, I try to you know, and that, that that's all that you know. That's really all that it is. Uh, but if you know uh, what the book is about, uh, where it fits into the marketplace of ideas, uh, why it's different from anything else that that came before it, and why and, and who's and who it's for, I think those components are really essential. But that fourth component is, and I say this to writers too, like I uh, writers too, tell me who the book is not for. Tell me who's not going to buy this book, and people have a hard time saying, "Oh, everybody will buy this book." Somebody pitched to me an idea. Somebody came to me once with an idea of a book about um, uh, uh, somebody was asking me advice on it. It was a book about. Um, I, I hope I don't. I don't. I think the book might have gotten published. I, I don't want to reveal the name. Uh, it was a book about the history of yoga in America. All right, the history or maybe the history of yoga. Yeah, I think it was the history of yoga. And it's like, oh, okay, that's that's cool. So I think a lot of people. Um, who do yoga might be interested in that. And she said, well, I think people who don't do yoga are going to be interested in this. And I said, no, they're not like (laughs) people who don't do yoga, don't care about the history of yoga. (laughs) All right. There are a lot of, there are a shitload of people in America who do yoga. Like that's a pretty good audience right there, but don't tell me every, you know what I mean? And so, um, you know, um, you know, so, 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 so for me, it's like, you know, for me, it's like, like my books, like, okay, I know that the, um, the um, like this book about the science. This book about the science of timing. I know that um, certain people in my neighborhood in Northwest Washington D.C. who read or who of a certain age and read only um, uh, literary fiction and 700-page biographies of founding fathers. They're not going to read this book. They're not going to read. They might be my neighbors. They're not going to read one of my books. Um, and so I, I think that's really, really important about who is the book not for.
0: Well, it's also an indicator of, of focus and well, logical slash rational thinking in a sense, right? Because if you're, for yeah. instance, just to digress for a minute, but if you're in the world of investing where I spent a long time with early stage startups, 17 years or so, if if they say everyone is my customer, there is a very real risk that if you give them X number of dollars. You give them a million dollars that they could be developing Dropbox for, say, early tech adopters in the first wave, <laughs> and they they need to get from zero to ten thousand users. And if there is a if a eighty percent off deal for uh, something like shopping mall circulars or something, that they would jump on that and piss yeah, away all exactly. piss away all exactly. their money. And uh, yeah, it certainly, I think, books. A lot of books fail, and this is true of presentations too, from too much miscellaneous information, not too little. Uh, if, if that makes any sense.
1: Uh, Absolutely, it's it's a matter of it's a, it's it's really just a matter of it's really just a matter of focus. And I, going back to the speech thing, I mean, one of the one of the pieces of advice, to the extent that anybody ever asked me for advice on on giving on giving speeches and whatnot, is. Um, you know, and it sounds a little like a, it, it sounds like a Zen koan ish sort of phrase, but basically my point is, uh, say something important rather than say important things. Um, and like, I find a lot of times people say something important rather than say important things. And cause I think a lot of times people like to try to stuff within the skin, all the things they found out, all the things that they know, and they end up not saying anything important. Um, and so, you know, um, uh, I, I, yeah. So, um, uh, so that's, that's the reason for doing that's So anyway, you get the idea.
0: Yeah, no, it it is. And uh, there are so many, uh, comparable examples. Uh, if, if for instance, you look for this, this vetting of ideas by putting together a short synopsis of some type yeah, and, yeah. and there's one example, for instance, and I, I believe this is true. Uh, I've I've certainly heard it and read about it a few times, and I know a fair number of people who work at Amazon, but they, they'd have to confirm. But I think Ian McAllister, who used to at least be a, a general manager at Amazon, talked about this. Is working backwards, and for oh, for, yeah. for yeah. new for new initiatives, the product manager who would be in charge of developing, say, a new product, has to write an internal press release which announces the finished product, right? So the and and that has to focus on effectively exactly what what. Uh, what you said, and I'm quoting here from a a medium piece, but quote centered around the customer problem, how current solutions internal or external fail and how the new product will blow away existing solutions. (laughs) And uh, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. If you can't write Ah. that press release, like how on earth are you going to navigate the decision tree of getting to a product that finds its feet? I mean, it it could be very different, uh, difficult, not to say you don't iterate, but, uh, it's, it's a good, it's a good filter through which you can at least catch the detritus that shouldn't make it to step two.
1: Oh man. I have to say, I am your hallelujah chorus on that press release technique. Uh, I've, I've literally done that, uh, uh, working with, uh, working, uh, I think it's helpful for like nonprofit groups that I'm involved in. So a nonprofit group wants to do a big project. Um, but they're all over the place. They don't know exactly what they want to do. And I literally did this. I said, I'll tell you what, Here's what I think the project is. Let me write a press release from two years from now, um, and send it around. And it ended up being I got the idea from Amazon too. It ended up being this this thing that was really really focused. So the the blah 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 uh, group uh, announced today that it was doing blah 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 blah, and it's like you know, and then it had quotes and things in it, and it ended, ended up being this this focal point on for for the whole organization on what are we actually trying to accomplish here. So I'm a, I'm a I, I second that emotion there big and,
0: time. And, and just to return to another thing that you said, which I'll paraphrase here as if everyone's your customer, no one's your customer. Yeah. Uh, another filter that or question that I use or have used. I'm not really in the startup game anymore, but have used a lot with startups because they'll ask me to review, say, a landing page and look at copy and messaging and so on. And before I will review it. Because I'll, if, if with no further information, I have to review it based on my pair of eyes and my perspective and my particular problems, I can try to empathize uh, and put myself in other people's shoes, but I have to know whose shoes to put myself in. And so I'll ask them, if you could only have a thousand people sign up for this, mm. who would they be and why? Like describe for me, and this isn't a politically correct exercise. Like what is like gender? Uh, race, if that matters, maybe it doesn't like, where do they live? What magazines or websites do they read? Uh, what is their household income? Like really get granular about what these people have in common, right? Like, do you want all the readers of people magazine? Do you want the 2000 people who attend Ted? Do you want something in between? Like really describe that for me. And only once that's been done, can I actually give feedback on modifying any of the features or copy or messaging on a particular page. Uh, So that's, I mean, it's, it's, these, these principles really transfer to a lot of different areas. Well, I, I, let me ask a, uh, just just a handful of additional questions and then uh, maybe we can do a round two sometime, but the, we've been talking a lot about the decisions you've made, the routines that you have. And although you're very self-effacing, I mean, someone could look at your bio and be very intimidated and assume that you step up to the plate and hit home runs more often than not. Uh, Could you tell us about maybe a specific, if you're open to it, difficult period that you've gone through or a down period, challenging period or failure could be any of those things. And what you did to get back on your feet or the decisions you made that helped you then kind of get get back on firm ground. If, uh, if anything comes to mind,
1: Sure, sure, sure. There are all kinds of things. Um, So, I mean, I hate to keep going back to the I hate to keep going back to the law school days. But um, but I um, uh, I did leave law school after my first year uh, and I hated it so much that I went to India instead. And um, I traveled around. (laughs) I traveled around India, which was an incredible life changing experience because I was a young guy. You know whatever old i was like 25 26 years old and hey you know at the time it was you know it was a while ago so at the, at the time india was even cheaper well much much cheaper than it was so if you're like uh, a 25 year old dude uh, traveling on your own with a tiny little bit of money in your pocket you can make it go very 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 far and so um so at the time i guess i felt like because i didn't do very well in my initial foray into law school I didn't really like it. I was pretty miserable. I felt I had made a terrible decision, and I at some level just tried to escape. And and the way I got back into it was um, um, essentially saying, okay, if I'm going to do this, then um, I'm going to try to figure out what are the one or two things that I can find valuable in this experience and just try to power my way through. And I guess that's I guess that's all that I, I guess that's all that I I guess that's all that I did to, to overcome that. But I felt pretty bad about how I didn't do very well. I didn't I didn't really like it. I felt I had made it like I felt I had made like a ruinous decision about about how my life was going to go. And when I sort of kind of woke up and matured a little bit, I said, OK, some people make like bad things actually happen to people. And I think going to India was actually helpful in that regard, too, because like, OK, I'm not living in a tar paper shack with. Filthy water, right? I'm just, I'm not, I'm not self-actualizing fast enough for, for a 25-year-old middle-class person. That's not a real problem. Um, and so I think that sort of putting the problems in perspective and just trying to find some, um, some goodness in what you're doing next. And also, I just like really deriving specific lessons from these kinds of failures. And and I think that's another part that's really important to me, is that rather than rather than simply allow, like, sort of this hazy notion of what you learn, I, again, I'm a big believer in writing things in, in writing things down, I'll give you I'll give you a better, I'll give you a better example of that. Um, uh, and this is I don't want to call this like a, 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 a major failure because it's not that ver- that's not that significant. But uh, so I did a TV show for National Geographic and I worked with uh, uh, a, a TV series and I worked with some really great people. And we put on a really freaking great show and it didn't get picked up for a second season. And. Um, and so it was disappointing, but it's not like a massive failure. It's not like anything real, like in, in life. But at that time, what I did is I said, you know, I basically created a file and said, okay, here's what I learned from this. Experience. Here are the things that I learned from this experience. Like one, I like working with really talented people. They uh, people who help me perform better Two, Um, I don't like to be involved in projects that I don't have full contra- creative control over three. um, um, working with people in traditional television can be very perilous because they're subject to all kinds of pressures that are out of their control. And so you have this experience where things didn't go the way you wanted to. But if you actually literally write down the lessons, I think you can get something positive out of it.
0: And was the writing down of these lessons more of a cathartic exercise or these would you go back and revisit that?
1: You know what? I I, 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 like like for me, a lot of times what I will do is for me, it's sometimes certain writing things down is simply the act of writing it down is enough to solidify it. Um, So I'll do the kind of thing where before a talk or something like that, I will um, like write an outline, like like basically I'll I'll know what I want to do. And then I'll take notes and write an outline of the speech and the points I want to hit. And then I literally will not look at it like I sometimes won't even bring it up with me. I'll forget to bring it up with me because the act of the act of actually memorializing it is really what gives it. It's 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 oomph. This is uh... but, but what I don't want. What, what I'm trying to say in a, in a, in a somewhat ham handed way is that like when you, you want to um, you, you don't want those kinds of lessons to be hazy too much uh you want to actually like what like what specific thing did i actually derive from this um and i think that's really useful there's also a great technique that Tina Seelig has used Tina Seelig who's at Stanford has has used where she talks about she she writes a failure resume so she has a resume of all of her failures and then with each one what she learned from it
0: when would she use
1: something like that um i, I mean she keeps it for herself But she would use it. Oh, I see. It's an
0: ongoing working document, just like a regular resume. Yeah, yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. Uh, An ongoing working document that basically, so you can look at it and say, okay, what? You know, boy, I made a lot of mistakes, but here's what I learned from it, and don't make the same mistake a second time. I don't mind making mistakes. What I don't like is making the same mistake twice.
0: With the uh, two questions on India, why India, and then second. How did you decide to find the compelling, I suppose, benefits of continuing with law school versus changing course?
1: Um, let's see. Um, uh, you know what? I, I think, I, okay, it's so on the second one. I think I was too risk averse to change course fully, um, I think that would, I think that would have been too much, <laughs> excuse me, too much of like a narcissistic injury just to like leave altogether. together. <laughs> uh, I, I probably would have, I probably would have felt like a, an abject failure. So I don't even think that was in the cards. Um, so on, on the why India, uh, a couple reasons, I'd always been fascinated by it. Um, I knew that, that <laughs> I could get around um, that, that I, that I, uh, the previous summer I had been to Southern Africa and, you know, um, and it was the first, I had never been out of the country, um, uh, until I was 23 years old, never been. Um, and so the first time I left the country, I went to Southern Africa, um, on a, I, I got, to, I raised some money to, to do this, pro- to do some, a project there. And it, that was a revelation, like, holy crap, this world is a lot bigger than I thought. And so I wanted to go to some place that wasn't, you know, Europe or some place that was a little bit different from a little bit more different from the United States. Um, and so in, India was a place that I'd always been fascinated by it spoke English and it was cheap.
0: That's, that's a compelling combination for someone leaving law school for a period well, of time.
1: Well, when you're, when, yeah, when you're 25 years old or however old I was and, um, and you have like a little money in your pocket, but you can go, you can go so far on so little money. It was unbelievable to me you know, especially if you're willing to like sleep over, like take overnight trains rather than pay for a place to stay, um, or, you know, live in these, you know, go to sleep in these places where there's just a row of beds on a, on a balcony and then mosquito nets over each one.
0: So the, uh, I mean, travel is one of those gifts that keeps on giving in a sense. Uh, I would put books in that same category. You, Yeah. Yeah, you've, I agree. You've written a lot of books. You've read even more books. Uh besides your own, and I'll just kind of segue into a couple of short questions, what what books are there any books that you've gifted often to other people or repeatedly to oh, yeah. other
1: people? Oh yeah. Um uh so uh they're probably books that you're uh you're, I I mean it might have been books that you've covered in this in your show here. So one of them is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. So great. um one of the greatest things ever. Um I come back to that advice so many different times. It's it's a saying even in the pink household uh, where like, we'll just say like, like one member of my family will say to the other who's struggling, okay, bird by bird, bird by bird. Um, And so um, I I am a huge, and I stumbled into this book. I remember I got, I remember where I got this next book. I got it in the airport in San Francisco, uh, in in the the bookstore in the San Francisco SFO. um, And for some reason, uh, I picked it up because it had this really weird cover. But one of the first editions of The War of Art um, by Stephen Pressfield had this kind of silvery cover to it. And I bought that book in the – I think it was the Compass bookstore in SFO just because it's oh, kind of cool. It has a silver cover and it's really short. And I, I got it and it's like, oh my god, I can't believe how good this book is. Um, and so I even have a little sign on my desk here that says Beat the Resistance. So I've given that <laughs> book out a lot too. <laughs> Um, so Pressfield and Lamont, and then, um, um, man, I have to say Victor Frankel, man, Search for Meaning, uh, is up there too. It's less I, I give it to be I, I, I've given that out less, but uh, that's a that's a hugely important book for me. Yeah, that's that's one of those
0: books I really need to uh, reread, uh, and, and I think you've you've actually spoken about. Uh, let me get this right. I was about to say Animal House, but that is not right. Animal Farm. <laughs> or oh my god! Animal, god. Farm. Animal
1: Farm is Animal Farm is one of the greatest books ever.
0: And and how you, it's a completely different experience as a book, at different points in your life. And the, absolutely right. And the last time I read *Man's Search for Meaning* was probably. I would say seven to 10 years ago. And a lot has changed in my life in that period of time. Uh, I think that that is worthy of a reread. Uh, and have you, it sounds like you've reread each of these books also bird by bird, the war of art, man's search Meaning yourself. You've
1: read these more. Yeah. Than once. Yeah, yeah. I have. I've read it more than once. Yeah. And, uh, but, but I'm not, I'm not a, like a chronic rereader. I'm like, there, there are some people who are regularly re there. There are relatively few books that I have that I have reread. Um, uh, but the, but those those I uh, those I absolutely have. And once you know, I had another experience in college. I, I get, the only thing I remember in college are shards of things that professors said, like basically one-liners. Uh, but I had a professor once in college who, in an American Studies course, he assigned us to read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So you're at a you're in college and your professor assigned you to read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. People are like, oh, you know, because like everybody read that book in high school. And and he said something. He said the following words. He says. I know you've read that book, but you haven't read that book, meaning the person you are today. And <laughs> and that ends up being but that ends up being true. So when I've read uh, I read Animal Farm at different points in my life um, uh, and, and had a different view on it. I have read Great Gatsby at different points in, in my life. Um, I have seen the play uh, Death of a Salesman um, perform. I don't know, probably seven times. And each one feels a little bit different to me. I had a completely different view of Death of a Salesman once I became a father versus before I became a father. Um, I, can imagine I, had, I had another view of Death of a Salesman uh, uh, before I knew about, uh, uh, you know, knew, you know had, had read about psychopharmacology and mental illness and after I did. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think that that experience, I think those kinds of experiences are really Fascinating. Animal Farm, I was like, oh, this is really cool. It's about the Soviet Union, and how power corrupts and blah, 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 blah. And, and, I, and now I read the book. It's like, OK, this book is basically about organizational dysfunction. This book, who cares whether it's supposed to be about the Soviet Union? This book is about the Acme Widget Corporation and how screwed up human organizations are like this. I, I think that Animal Farm should be in every organizational behavior class in an MBA program
0: that's another one I need to reread. Not a long book either. I mean, I read that in sixth grade or something. I mean, completely, you'll, you'll, you'll you'll see it
1: completely. You'll see it completely. You'll see it completely differently. That's a, that's a great book. I've read 1984 multiple times too.
0: Also a very timely book uh these days uh, oh
1: well i have I, on that front i i read uh, uh uh the handmaid's tale for the first time i'm sort of 30 years late to it that i read and i love that book um i have a whole i'm not joking around and if if you want validation i'll send you a photograph of it i i basically have a, a, a stack of books right here that is that's basically dystopia books that includes <laughs> philip roth the, the plot against america um, an Octavia Butler book, um, Sinclair Lewis, "It Can't Happen Here," um, another sci-fi book called uh, Elliot by Elliot Pepper called Cumulus. Another one called Infomocracy by Malca Alder. I have a whole. Um, I'm basically I have a whole pile of dystopian works. Why is that? Why do
0: you? Why do you read want so to much understand,
1: dystopian? I want to understand the, the current moment more more clearly.
0: So, well, this might be. I'm, this might be an appropriate next question. It doesn't have to be related to what you just said, but if you could put a short message on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, to get a word, a quote, a question out to millions or billions of people, what might you put on that billboard?
1: Well, it's interesting because I think it is related to, um, what we were just talking about, or maybe the fact that you asked it in this context made me related. Um, but one of the, um, one of the things that I would, I would write would be assume positive intent. That would fit very nicely on a billboard. Assume, assume positive intent because I think, and, I, and I've changed my view on this, Tim. Uh, I, 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 I've actually in some ways become, um, I've sort of gone the reverse, like, like basically the, the, the general view is that people are idealistic when they're young and cynical when they're older. And I've actually become less cynical as I've gotten older. Uh, and, um, the other thing is basically on, on politics, like, you know, th- like there's this old line in politics, like everybody dies a Republican, um, <laughs> right. But, you know, cause like a, 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 as you get older and you have something to conserve, you become more conservative. I found myself going actually the o- the opposite direction as I understand more about the, more about the world. But the point is a point of all that and assume positive intent is that I think, and it, and it goes to our politics right now is that a lot of times. I don't you know, I, I just think like your, your defaults, de, you know, this already our default settings are so important in any realm of our life. And I think a lot of times um, if your default setting is that people have everybody you deal with has negative intent, that's going to lead you down one pathway. There's no question about it. And and, I, and here's the thing. I don't think that's true. I really my experience as a human being is that some people obviously have negative intent, but most people do not. Most people actually have positive intent. So my view is that if you assume positive intent on the part of others and let them disprove that, that's a better way to go than to assume negative intent and say, I'm going to assume that you have negative intent, Tim Ferriss, until you prove that you actually have positive intent. Um, I think just doing the reverse – doing the reverse is better. Assume positive intent. Not that – I'm not Pollyanna here. I don't think everybody has positive intent. But I think most people do. And if you just, just make that your default setting, you're going to have better interactions with people. You're going to learn. You're going to learn a lot more.
0: The default setting, default state, as you put it, in this case, creates a completely different experience of reality. Uh, Absolutely. Whether it's guilty until proven innocent, as you look at everyone and anything around you, or innocent until proven guilty. And I remember you're talking about these one-liners, these shards that that stick in the mind. I remember. A, I can't, I can't recall who said this to me, but they said, if you go out one day, you walk around and you meet an asshole, that person is an asshole. If, on the other hand, you go out and everyone you meet is an asshole, you're the asshole. <laughs> right. And uh, if, if you assume that everyone has negative intent, you yourself become yeah. that which you loathe. Uh, and- nice
1: point. That's a really good point.
0: And, uh, that's
1: a very good point.
0: I love that. Assume positive intent. Well, uh, it
1: also fits. It also fits on a billboard. It does. You know, that's the other thing. I was actually taking that thing very literally. It's like, i was literally picturing in my head, like what would be, what could, what could, what could fit on the, what could, what could fit on the billboard? Well,
0: I think that's, I think that's a great place to wrap. Uh, I mentioned a few things at the top of the show, Dan at Daniel pink on Twitter, Facebook, Daniel H pink. Is there anything else that you would like to mention as closing comments, or request and ask of the audience? Anything else you would like to say?
1: No, I mean, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. And, you know, if people have listened this far, God bless them. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't. I, I, that's, I, even I'm not that ingrateful uh, to ask for something more after this kind of indulgence. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I'm a big fan of your work. I have hey, been for you. a very appreciate long time, you. and for I, including Johnny Bunko, uh, thank you. W- which I still have to this day. So you may recall ages ago, lifetimes ago, I think it was at South by Southwest, actually, which is timely since I now live in Austin, Texas. You inscribed, uh, you signed a copy of that book for me, which I still have. I've carried it with I,
1: you. I remember where we were sitting. Yeah. yeah. So I do. I,
0: so I appreciate it, and I still have the book and it's really been nice to reconnect and catch up a bit. Uh, indeed,
1: yeah. Yeah, and it's been fun, to, you know, obviously it's been fun to watch uh, all, all the great things that all the great things that you're doing and just how you, this this massive audience that you've built and just you know, I I've, I've gotten so much I have a uh, my dog-eared you know, it's too bad you we're not on video but I could show you my dog-eared copy of um, Tools of Titans. Which is, <laughs> which is a awesome. which is a which is a great book title by the way.
0: Uh, it is the only book title that came easily it is the only one all the other ones were agonizing 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 sessions of brainstorming and picking one of the titles among many that i felt dissatisfied with tools of titans for whatever reason uh thanks to the universe or whatever powers that may be or, or or luck that may have uh, happened upon me, but that, that is one that just kind of came and I was like, Oh yeah, no, that's, that's the title. And that was it. I didn't,
1: I also didn't realize that you were in Austin. How did you end up in Austin or why I, did you end up in
0: Austin? Yeah, it's uh, I, I have felt a gravitational pull to Austin for a very long time. I, in fact, wanted to move here right out of college, but I didn't get the job at trilogy software. <laughs> I made it to a final, oh, okay. made it to a final round of interviews, which brought me out to Austin, really fell in love with the town. Uh, the the baseline of friendliness and warmth here, uh, of neighborly feel, is higher than just about any other place I've experienced. And then, instead of getting a job here, I got a job in the Bay Area, which took me to San Jose and Mountain View and San Francisco for the better part of you know, nearly 20 years, which I yeah. loved for that period of time. But much like with books, I think that you visit places and your experience of those places Changes over time, and what what attracted me to the Bay Area, I think has uh, has has morphed into something else, and mm. I, I have also morphed into someone else, and it it felt right, like, it right. felt like t- it felt like a good time for me to experiment with a new location. Also, I found myself within the very almost inescapable conversation of tech to uh, be just drinking the Kool-Aid a little too heavily or repeating yeah, or, yeah, or, yeah. or, or believing my own bullshit maybe. Not, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah, necessarily yeah. bullshit, but getting caught up in a lot of platitudes that are thrown around so often in Silicon Valley to have become part of the daily vernacular. And that scared me, quite frankly, that I was like, wait a second. If I look back at the last five to six months, how many conversations have I had that don't include the following 12 words or 12 expressions? Oh yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, wow, yeah, I can yeah, actually yeah. count them on on both hands. Yeah,
1: interesting. Interesting. And, um, interesting.
0: Yeah. Where well, did you grow up? I grew up at the very end of long Island and, uh, was born a, a townie in the Hamptons, which is a very odd thing. To I, be. See. Um, I see. And for anyone, see. for anyone who's seen the affair, I, I have not, but I've heard that the affair this TV show that is, is apparently quite popular. A lot of it takes place in this restaurant called the lobster roll, which is in Montauk. And I used to be a busboy at the Long Oh School. wow! Nice. Uh, yeah. So Long Island is 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 where this this uh, I do this whole, whole thing weirdly
1: started. weirdly. I remember from four hour work week. I think that you described yourself as a hellion. Hellion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a little hellion. Good memory.
1: Which is a great word. Yeah, oh, which is such a great word. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I, but I, but I realized I didn't have any geographic sense of where you uh where you where you grew up yeah that's I think, interesting I think the use of Hellion is actually in the
0: dedication to my parents and my yeah, mom. I think that's right I Thank think that's him. right
1: you know why and one reason I remember that is that I listened to part of uh, uh I got part of that book on on audiobook um and I remember at the beginning because you read that book I'm almost certain yeah it was Ray
0: Porter who has has a voice that is easily <laughs> oh, wait, mi- that mistaken for my my various mannerisms that I've developed now via podcasting. (laughs) So that was, that was Ray Porter who did a great
1: job. Oh, interesting.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I'm pretty sure that I, but I know it's just a great word. It is a good word. It is a good word. It's a great word. And, uh, I'm going to try to use it in the next 24 hours. When I have it, when I come up with a good, when I hear a good word, I try to, I try to drop it in the next 24 hours just because, it helps to reinforce it for me.
0: Well, I'm going to try to use surrogation, and I'm going to try to eat more hard-boiled eggs in the next 24 hours.
1: Well, um, you're, you're golden. <laughs> golden. <so laughs> your life will change markedly if you start employing the principle of surrogation while eating hard-boiled eggs. Everything will. You're, you're, every, the sun will come shining up, and the sun will 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 burst out from behind the clouds, and unip- unicorns will scamper across your front lawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, my,
0: my dog will love that. And uh, Dan, this has, been, this has been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. That. I appreciate it. It was a lot of, really interesting.
0: And uh, for everybody listening, as always, you can find links to everything, in, including uh, Dan's social website, the new book, When, and much more in the show notes, which you can find at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening. The coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered, it could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up This episode is brought to you by WeWork. I love WeWork. I haven't had an office in
1: many, many, many,
0: many, many years since 2000 or so when I had my last real job, I suppose, in quotation marks. But when I moved from San Francisco to Austin not long ago, I decided, you know what? I'm tired of working at home, I'm tired of working at coffee shops. So one of the very first things I did was to get a space at WeWork. I could not be happier with this change in my life. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where companies and people grow together. The idea is really simple. You focus on your business and WeWork takes care of all the rest, including front desk service, utilities, refreshments, and more. I also often have things shipped from Amazon and elsewhere to my office at WeWork. Here in Austin, I've been completely blown away by the members-only events, special offers, and perhaps the best cold brew coffee on tap that I've ever had. It's been amazing been a real, real change in my life and improved my quality of life. And there are also dog-friendly WeWork locations all over the place. How fun is that? WeWork caters to everyone from entrepreneurs and freelancers to startups and even large enterprises, including GE, Salesforce, Microsoft, MasterCard, Samsung, Spotify, Pinterest, and Red Bull, among many others. In fact, more than 10% of Fortune 500 companies currently use WeWork, and it's a rapidly growing group. In other words, it's not just printers and ground-level startups that use WeWork, but everything from that to the big companies who are seeing very huge benefits as well. WeWork believes that creating spaces where people can connect and create meaning together, right? And after all, if you are someone who has built a business modeled on the principles of the 4-Hour Workweek or elsewhere, it can be a lonely road sometimes, even though you're digitally connected, it can feel very, very isolating. So in these spaces, you can connect with real humans, and uh, all the while, use space more efficiently and cost-effectively, which makes you and your business better equipped to face the challenges of today and tomorrow. WeWork now has more than 200 locations, so you can find great spots all over the world. So head over to we.co forward slash Tim, that's we.co, C-O. We.co forward slash Tim to become a part of the global WeWork community. At the very least, I encourage you to check out pictures of some of the locations around the world. There are some incredible spots. So check it out. We.co forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. You might remember Four Sigmatic for their mushroom coffee, which was created by those clever Finnish founders. And when I first mentioned that coffee on this podcast, the product sold out in less than a week. It lights you up like a Christmas tree, which can be really useful. However, recently I've been testing the opposite side of the spectrum, a new product, and that is their Reishi Mushroom Elixir to help me end my day to get to sleep. As you guys may know, long-time listeners at least I struggled with insomnia for decades I have largely fixed that but still shutting off my monkey brain has never been easy still isn't easy very often and I found reishi which I've been fascinated by for a few years now has been very very effective and calming their old formula however four sigmatics old formula included stevia and I like to avoid sweeteners all sweeteners for a host of reasons and I then just pinged them and asked hey guys I would love to experiment with this and maybe actually suggest it but I'd like a version without sweeteners if you'd be open to it if too much of a headache don't worry and they are always game for experimentation. And so they created a special custom version without the Stevia, without sweeteners. Now it is part of my nightly routine. Their ratio Elixir comes in single serving packets, which are perfect for travel. And in fact, I'm about to leave the country right now. And I have a packet in front of me that's just going to sit in the end of my carry-on bag. You only need hot water. And it mixes very, very easily. Here's some recommended copy that they put in the read so i'm going to read it and i'll give you my take quote a warning for those in the experimental mindset reishi is strong and bitter in parentheses like any great medicine so if the bitterness is too much i recommend trying it with honey and or nut milk such as almond milk end quote so i'm going to say no you should suck it up and you should drink the tea because it's not that bitter and maybe you should take the advice of old Chinese people when they're criticizing youngins when they say, which means you're not able to eat bitterness. Bitter is, in many cases, an indication of things that help liver detoxification and so on. I'm not saying that's the case here, but... I've tested this ratio lecture on family members, on friends, everybody has liked it. It's a little bit earthy, it's not that hard. So I would just say suck it up and no, don't put in honey or nut milk or any of that shit. Just drink the goddamn tea, it's delicious, I think, right? If you like pu'er, that kind of stuff, that type of tea, you're going to dig it. So just try it. Okay, back to then my read. If you'd like to naturally improve your sleep, both onset and quality, I think, naturally... You might just enjoy this reishi elixir without any sweeteners. It has organic reishi extract, organic field mint extract, organic rose hips extract, organic tulsi extract. And that's it. No fancy stuff, no artificial whatchamacallit, anything. So check it out. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Ferris and get 20% off this special batch. I don't know if they're going to be making much more of this uh, since it was made specifically for you guys. So do me a favor and try it out so that they continue to be open to experimenting with me to create products for you guys specifically. Check it out. Foursigmatic. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S-S and get 20% off this special batch. And uh, you must use the code FERRIS to receive your discount, F-E-R-R-I-S-S. So, again, go to foursigmatic.com forward slash FERRIS, and then use code FERRIS for 20% off of this rare, exclusive, limited run of Reishi Mushroom Elixir for nighttime routines without any sweeteners. Enjoy.